Anyway, all I was going to say is that some uh, some <laughs> some kids, some youths, uh, were playing uh, <laughs> a very jovial game of bogeys in the street, and I was just really happy to know that the game bogeys is still still alive. What is the game of bogeys, please? <gasps> so, do you remember Dick and Dom? Yes. They had a TV- oh, yes. it's about yelling bogeys. Yes, slowly escalating yes. the shout, the word bogeys until oh eventually God. one of you is shouting it in a public place. Right. And it was the height of comedy. <laughs> and- yes, Dick and Dom came slightly after me, but I have met other people who are very nostalgic for bogeys. Paul, you're only like three months older than I am. All right, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, you can call me a grandma because of our patriarchal society i at the age of 32 i'm considered a grandma and cat worthy <laughs> cat worthy but you will always be in your prime beautiful man <laughs> i've got a streak of gray hair now <laughs> oh no now you're just salt and pepper whereas ah, i'm haggard i'm a yeah. witch <laughs> yeah it's... throw me away you know what just brick me in that wall oh we should do that test to make sure you're not a witch i would i'd rather you didn't because oh, uh, because I'm allergic to tests. Wait, that makes sense. Okay, mm. we won't do it. Mm-hmm. Great. Phew. <laughs> I've bought myself another few months. <laughs> <laughs> What's great about you, Paul, is that I can start just a normal sentence and it turns into just anything, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> such a normal sentence. Went to Liverpool on an errand. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what? You f***ed a bull? <laughs> no. But you're into that kind of thing. Anyway, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Jen and the Film Critic. My name is Jen and with me as always is my film critic, Paul Salt. Say hi, Paul Salt. Bogies. You see, I think that's creepy. I think going into a public library and just whispering it is far more disruptive and unsettling. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> What's he doing? I wish those teenagers would come back. This guy's going to kill all of us. <laughs> just take our books and leave. Um... Yeah. Protect the books. <laughs> No space for books on this podcast, Paul. This is a film podcast. That's true. This is a Screen Mayhem podcast. And here we talk about films. And it's therefore by very very nature illiterate. Illiterate. What are movies for? We don't watch subtitles. (laughs) No. Um, Talk to me about some films, Paul. Let me tell you about some films. Because I I had this memory of after recording our last episode, I felt really good that there were only 13 films left to come out this year. Easily (laughs) covered in a single episode. Right. Uh, Okay. What I didn't appreciate, although that we do only have thirteen to talk about. Okay. True, okay. But I didn't realise that I didn't quite time it out. So we are going back to the beginning of November eventually with this. <laughs> okay, yeah, I thought we might be going back quite away. <laughs> That's so, fine. For the purposes of stacking the sort of most relevant slash ones I have most in mind uh, up front, I thought we might go chronologically backwards to our last episode. You're allowed to pick whatever format you want for each episode. That is in your contract. (laughs) You've done some crazy things so far. Remember when you paired them off? Oh, that was the best. That was the best episode of this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see those days again. Remember when you did uh, London Film Festival by worst to best? Yep, that was good. Yeah. I enjoyed that. That led to a very good sort of escalating positivity mm-hmm. slash the yeah. sort of negative review hounds could shut off halfway through. Yeah. 
remember when you did the ones um, that had oh. secret references to the Illuminati first? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there was that. That one didn't get published. Well, that one did get published, but weirdly... Only for like five it. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Odd that. Yeah, it is odd. I go online to our podcast management thing and I can see it there. Yeah. But you cannot find it in the apps. Very strange. It's just impossible to find. And the next week, you know, we were both back, but then had slightly different accents. Yeah. Very odd. Yeah, it was very weird. I'm Sorry, I mean, it was completely normal. Oh, very absolutely normal. Yeah. It was absolutely normal. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Popular Comedy Podcast. Popular Comedy Podcast about filmic things. Paul yes. Salt, tell us about filmic things. Let me tell you about the most recent <laughs> filmody I saw. Great. I would <laughs> because, love to hear it, Paul Salt. Because after regular British Boxing Day, there was mm. released Ferrari. Ferrari. Something for all of the dads <laughs> um, to join the great canon of dad movies that there has been this year. <laughs> um, Michael Mann returns to the big screen for a mm. narrow release uh, before its debut on Sky. Uh, which you can look out for probably in the next couple of weeks, probably even before I've published this. <laughs> <laughs> we follow the renowned Carman... Sorry. Carman. 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 That's what I was aiming for, is Carman, but then I capitalised it, so I thought his first name was Carman. Carman. Carman so, yes. Carman. Yeah. <laughs> we follow the renowned Carman, Enzo Ferrari, uh, through 1957, the year after the death of his young son, running up to the tragic and, you know, spectacular events of the meal me ah no that's an italian phrase meal (laughs) melia okay great or or perhaps mila melia if uh your jared letter mila melia mila melia mila melia mila melia i've got nothing (laughs) we follow yeah so it's during that devastating year we follow ferrari (laughs) as he tries to juggle a failing race car business a volatile wife a secret (laughs) family and of course his own profound grief. Ah. Now, I love a biopic that focuses on a contained period of time. Uh, Goodfellas is the exception to the rule because it just rockets through Henry Hill's life. Uh, is, but dis- sorry, is Goodfellas a biopic? Yeah, Nicholas Pileggi. I didn't realise that. <laughs> yeah, it's based on his own... I mean, it's his own book told by him, so how much sure. is true is, you know, yeah. a different learn, matter. But learn something new every day. <laughs> According to him, all of that crazy stuff happened. Um, <laughs> but I do think that the delirious, disorienting effect of racing through that man's life is very much part of the point of the film. That, mm. You know, his life was like that. Um, far better, generally, I think, is to tell a person's life by just maximum economy you know what's the fewest number of events you need to make sense of this person and i think the gold standard for that is danny boyle and aaron sorkin's steve jobs Mm. uh, the film that nobody saw (laughs) and told the life of steve jobs in three product launches okay of the imac something in the 90s that wasn't very popular and the (laughs) um the i the i uh phone Uh. you know those three product launches I don't Could know. No, well, the I thing in the nineties was when he he left Apple and was working uh, for his own thing, okay. or rather, he was kicked out of Apple. But anyway, literally three nights that movie mm. is, and it tells the story of Steve Jobs, and I love that. That's what I think mm. is best. And I was therefore very pleased that um, Ferrari focuses on just a few months in the life of Enzo, Ferra- Enzo Ferrari, drawing out the key relationships and philosophies that seem to drive him, so to speak. Mm. all the jokes we bring you all all the jokes the jokes let's the jokes flip it into upper gear is that what they say yes i also drive drive. 
Drive, drive, my drive, drive. Let's let's put our foot on the gas and get this podcast going. <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, speaking of which, it is a Michael Mann film, so okay. it absolutely does thrive in pacing and atmosphere. Mm. You know, everyone's very cool, and they say very dramatic, self-serious things to each other in gorgeous mm. settings with mellow music and a slightly camp undercutting uh, the self-seriousness, which is mm. vital, I find. And it pulls you into its setting and lets you settle into the routine and concerns of Ferrari's life before ramping up the tension into the big race sequence near the end. Um, And the driving sequences absolutely blow away the more expensive Gran Turismo from earlier this year, Mm. but do fall short of the gold standard of racing films, which is John Frankenheimer's Grand Prix from 1966, which is a staggeringly good film. That that is the film that makes you feel like you're inside the car and is terrifying as a result. (laughs) Paul um, Salt has never been in a car. I haven't, but my God, I feel like I have been because I watched John Frankenheimer's <laughs> 1966. It's what London does to you. <laughs> Ferrari does especially fall short when it comes to the crashes, which are unfortunately hilarious. There are two crashes in the film, and they are both very serious recreations of very real events with severe consequences mm. that have a profound effect on Ferrari, but they look silly. Oh, shame. Not... Not that I'd say that to Adam Driver's face, of course, because there's a very famous <laughs> clip of a question asker asked, uh, bringing this up to him and him. Well, I can't say it, unfortunately, because we're not swearing, but mm. he responds. Uh, dismissive. Dismissive, I think, is the okay. best way to put it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, they, yeah, they do look silly. I'm sorry, they do. It's not, it's not Adam Driver's fault. I don't know why he was being presented with it, but the crashes are quite silly, which is a yeah. shame. Uh, But, speaking of Adam Driver, he is fantastic as Enzo. There's always a risk when you have a performance where so much, you know, care is taken, or where so much of it is in the look and the voice. Mm. Um, There's there's a concern that it's going to turn into a caricature. But I did have faith in Driver. He was the only performer who managed to resist all-out cheese in House of Gucci, so I knew he would manage well here. Okay. And he does. He finds the humanity, the humor, and the sorrow in the man, whilst also giving a good sense of why he might have been able to captivate people and become a national figure. Um, I've seen... I, I don't know much about the original Enzo Ferrari. I don't know how accurate this is, but you, it's a charismatic performance that gets across the idea of the man, which I think cool. is more important. Yes. And then opposite him, he has Penelope Cruz, who plays the sort of long-suffering wife who has to tolerate his various affairs and the indignities of being married to such, you know, this this man. And she's playing a character that could so easily lapse into cliche, just the jealous, scorned mm. wife with the fiery Italian disposition. But again, Cruz finds the heart and is deeply sympathetic and captiv- captivating. Cool. She's just, yeah, every scene that she's in, she's just, the, the scenes between them is just are just the best. Mm. So yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. It's a sleek, well-acted, slightly disarming biopic that avoids most of the pitfalls of potential absurdity and macho nonsense, which also could be very much a thing here if you're telling a movie about the guy who invented Ferrari. Yeah. You know, luckily they avoid that by having a lot of sort of self-awareness and um, and humour, but also a lot of humanity in it, which is what you should expect from Michael Mann. Dads will love this, but it's a good enough <laughs> movie that everyone else will be quietly impressed by it too, at least okay. the first time he puts it on. Cool. <laughs> so I'm going to say four stars. Great. Oh, that's more than yeah. I had expected. Yeah. I don't know why, but very good. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Well, for Ferrari. Molto yeah. bene. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> what a great year for dad films it's been. I hear Blackberry <laughs> is also very okay. much in that era. Air seems to have gone down yeah. well. Yeah, there's a, there's a little mini Dad's canon. Happy. Dads but are dads happy. just love products is the thing. <laughs> dads love uh, products. Yeah. Oh, that's the shame. And how they were made. 
and how they were made. Yeah. Because I think all dads like to think one day they could invent a sports car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if only the circumstances were right and they had a big enough shed. Yeah, exactly. Right? The problem is the shed size. You're right, <laughs> Steve. The problem is your shed isn't big enough. Go yes. tell your wife. <laughs> I'm sorry your wife insisted on having a room where she could like knit and do things. Yeah. I'm sorry your wife insisted on having a kitchen. <laughs> You're right. A pizza oven in the garden would have been enough. Yeah, but I yeah. agree. Yeah. Can't, sometimes you can't speak truth to power. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And now for the big blockbuster of the Christmas season. Yay. Oh, we're all off school and it's Christmas and we can go see something. Maybe even multiple <sighs> times. Oh, <sighs> June 2 has been pushed back to next year. <sighs> That's a shame. What do we have? Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Oh. Is that already How out? Are the schools definitely locked all up? We can't, can't go, can't back, go back, in? back in? Yeah. <laughs> Get ahead of next year? No? Okay. Can I just fine. run laps? Aquaman. I hate laps. Can I just run laps? <laughs> <laughs> just run laps around the school, please. Please? <laughs> please, sir. Please. Don't make me watch Aquaman. <laughs> I don't want to, sir. I promise I'll be good this year. I promise. <laughs> Yeah. Promise. You're going to Aquaman, son. No. <laughs> I'm oh. running away to join the circus. This isn't worth it. <laughs> the circus is run by Jason Momoa. You're out of luck. Ah. Oh, now I, I feel like I've been discussing the end of the DCEU pretty much since this podcast started. <laughs> I feel like the first DCEU film I reviewed was meant to be one of the last. Yeah, probably. Nevertheless, we are finally here. This is actually the last DCEU film ahead of its reboot in 2025 with James Gunn's Superman film. So this is it. This is the end of this canon. The canon that started with Man of Steel, included the Ben Affleck Batman, the Flash, all of that. It's all over. Great. And what a strange note to end on. Not just, not with a final Justice League movie or some kind of cataclysmic event. It's just a sequel to Aquaman. One of yeah. their more adequate efforts. Yeah. And it thoroughly feels like just an average <laughs> Aquaman film, except that at the end, there's no sequel basing because wow. not going to be one. Interesting. It's kind of sad in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> so James Wan returns to continue or, and I guess, conclude the adventures of Jason Momoa's Aquaman as he faces the wrath of uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen's uh, II's uh, Black Mantra, who wants revenge because his pirate dad died in the last one and he kind of blames Aquaman. So yeah, great, great motivation. So he has to team up with the villain from the last film, Patrick Wilson's, oh God, or Marius, who is is his brother uh, in order to protect Atlantis and to stop Black Mantra. Mantra? Manta. Manta. Oh, like the ray. Yeah, like a manta ray. Black manta, Mm. not mantra. (laughs) Um, so I'm sticking to my rule of devoting as little time as I can to superhero films until something, you know, earns the space because this is just very much like the others, really. It's by far the best DCEU film of the year, which isn't saying much because (laughs) the other, the other two count as amongst the worst films of the year for me. Um, but it has the usual things right and wrong with it. You know, good humor, a few performers giving it their all for some reason and with some success, but then also tonal inconsistency, unaffecting action sequences and fairly off-putting aesthetic. Mm. I actually saw Willem Dafoe interviewed ahead of a screening of Poor Things yeah. uh, last month, 
um, still my favourite film of the year, and he was talking about how he was work- going to work with Yorgos Lanthimos for the first time, and he was a bit nervous, and so he spoke to Nicole Kidman about it, who had worked with him on Killing of a Sacred Deer, and they chatted whilst filming the first Aquaman. Wow. And it's just the idea of Nicole Kidman and Willem Dafoe <laughs> chatting about Yorgos Lanthimos whilst yeah. dressed up as weird little fish royalty. <laughs> amazing (laughs) love that yeah (laughs) the stories that must get told whilst the really good actors they get in these things wait for the guy to say action yeah yeah let's not forget that bill murray michael douglas and michelle pfeiffer were in a room together at least (laughs) seemingly for bloody ant-man and the wasp so yeah true true god Mm. the the behind the scenes stuff must be so much more interesting (laughs) probably oh god but hey, not every performer is here because Amber Heard's role has been diminished, which might be a reaction to the toxic attitudes towards her online, or mm. might just be standard Hollywood practice of sidelining the love interest into a bland supportive role um, after the initial courtship narrative has been exhausted because they don't know what else to do with a female character. Yeah. The important thing is that no one's happy, <laughs> uh, which is a byline for the uh, DCEU. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I don't know, with the watery aesthetic and seasonal timing of its release, I wonder if the idea was to be Avatar 2 for mm. this year, but it has far more in common with Black Panther Wakanda Forever, the disappointing yeah. water-based sequel that promptly disappeared last year, and I think Aquaman 2 is probably going to do the same. Fair. It's just a thoroughly average effort that towers above many of the other DCEU movies in competence and is unlikely to make a splash, ho-ho. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Two stars. Merry Christmas. Two stars. Yeah, fair enough. I didn't realise that was out already because I was getting a trailer for it like the week before Christmas. They're trying to push it. They really are. I really thought that was months away. When you said this is out, gosh, the fact I was still getting trailers. What was funny was that I got a trailer for that and it's like directed by James Wan. I'm like, okay. Next film trailer is, is it called Deep Water? Oh. His new horror film? Oh, no. directed. um... <laughs> this is the one that Katie insists should be called Marco Polo, but it's actually called Night Swim, which yes, is such Night a swim, lame title. It's a rubbish swim. Also by James Wan. It's a rubbish <laughs> swim. I was at the cinema with Sarah Keep, and we looked at each other and we were like, is the monster Aquaman? Because it should be. <laughs> is it a pool again? What is it's it with the aquatic horror? <laughs> yeah. It's just so like, dumb. da, 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 da. Ah, it's Aquaman. It is Aquaman in your swimming pool. Hey! And he slabs, hey! A, he slabs a bird. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Good Lord. Oh, and that's it. It's all over, folks. Ten years of terrible to mediocre films. Ten only... years. Yeah, that was 2013, Man of Steel. It's been ten years Gosh. with only three authentically good films to show for it. What a legacy. Yeah. Ugh. Which are the three authentically good ones? I think it's uh, The Suicide Squad. That's fairly mm. un- uh, the uncontroversial. Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad. Mm. Uh, Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And I think Birds of Prey. Okay. Yeah, others yeah, yeah. Oh, would, yeah. Others would put in an argument for Shazam or the first uh, Aquaman, but... I, I wouldn't argue for Shazam. No. No, it's mm. probably mediocre, but... Yeah. That's it. Ten years of filmmaking. Wow. So much money. So much talent. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Anyway... That's next film. You, well, that's what you get. You got they got off to a terrible start by giving so much creative power to Zack Snyder. Yeah. Speaking of Zack Snyder, oh no! <laughs> released the very same day. Something you cannot tell me is not some sort of attempted uh, middle finger to the studio, which didn't quite work <laughs> out as well as it did for Oppenheimer. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> just ahead of the Chris- of Christmas, we have a late front runner for worst film of the year. It's oh. Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon Part One: A Child <gasps> of Fire. I've seen some of this because it's released oh. on Netflix, isn't it? It was simultaneously released on Netflix. Because... I have actually seen like half of. Well, no, it's quite long. <laughs> I've seen like the. La- I walked in and watched like the last half an hour. Amazing. Great. <laughs> <laughs> watching it my parents and then some people wandered <laughs> out and then my dad continued watching it because i think my mum went oh. to bed and my dad kept it on and so oh, i God. came in and was like hey what's this i'm gonna uh, just sit on the sofa and watch the last half an hour i cannot wait to hear what you figured the last half hour but let me just do a quick rundown because <laughs> please this is Zack snyder's opening gambit in his quest to create a massive multimedia franchise he wants mm. several trilogies he says he's got planned he wants graphic novels board games tv shows the whole shebang Good luck. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) such a strong opening premise. We're in a fictional galaxy where a terrible empire of British Nazis uh, Mm. and the the bad guys make the First Order seem like subtle allegory in terms of whether or not these are meant to be Nazis. They're literally (laughs) wearing Nazi outfits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I walked in and I was like, oh, it's Nazis. Yeah. They're space Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's Iron Skies is what it is. Mm. So, and they come to a tiny innocent village of all American Amish Vikings who are too innocent (laughs) to fight back and they demand that they hand over their complete harvest, which will make them starve to death. So Sophie Patella's Cora, who has a dark past she's running from, goes off to recruit a magnificent, uh, a magnificent seven samurai, <laughs> um, a bug's life, in order to defend the village from the British space Nazis. Mm. And that's the premise. Yeah. Um, it's painfully unoriginal, as you've yeah. put together. Most of the movie is, recru- is dedicated to recruiting these people, yes. which goes the same way every single time. They find them in the middle of the fight, watch them resolve the fight entirely on their own, and then recruit them afterwards. Oh, great. The story is completely obvious and without a hint of ambiguity. Snyder has truly abandoned any pretext of being anything other than a visual stylist with music video levels of engagement with his material. You know, just, yeah. but what, what what has changed is the visual style of his work has gotten significantly uglier since the pandemic. <laughs> he started favoring this hideous, shallow and narrow focus that ensures that most of the images are blur, except the thing in the very middle. Mm. You know, and I was watching this on a 70 millimeter film projection, which had this very uncanny effect because the image was shot and processed digitally and looks it and has a very unappealing digital look. Transferring okay. that to 70 millimeter film to project just had this uncanny effect of oscillating between actually looking like a movie and a video game cutscene. Oh, weird. Yeah, I could imagine. It was so surreal. Every so often you'd be like, oh, wait, am I watching like a 1970s bleak sci fi? No, no, there's a big CGI orb. Yeah. named Jeff it's just uh, uh, the, the performances are terrible Sophie Patella in particular often seemed visibly afraid of the camera in the <laughs> early sequences at least the story is relayed through bland expository monologues with no humanity to encourage engagement reminded me of YA like bad YA fiction yeah. in that respect Yeah, there's nothing here to capture the imagination or make you want to see more and throughout all of that the only thing that kept me in my seat was the prospect of some good action Snyder hasn't managed this in a while, but perhaps this time it will be different. So there's a particularly unpleasant sequence that recalls the so-called grimdark tendencies of 1980s comic book, where just dropping in references to sexual assault, violence, and bad language was considered hallmarks of maturity rather than the opposite. Mm. Batella appears in order to, as a guardian angel to stop a bad thing that's happening, and the first generic bad guy approaches her... And the footage slows down, and we hear a very naughty's as things slow down. 
and then there's like a ching as the first like blade hits. I cringe so hard. I genuinely feel embarrassed to be sat there in the cinema. I start to hope that no one I know sees me leave this cinema because of what's just happened. I wonder if I can go to the box office and ask them to print me a really big ticket that just says porn on it so I can lie if I'm asked and maintain some dignity. That was, it was so embarrassing that his style has moved on so little since 2007. Yeah. And after that, I just had this really powerful sense that I wanted to leave. The instinct to get up and go swept over me. It's Christmas. My family are waiting for me at home. Nobody's paying me for this review. I don't owe anything. It turns out you watched the end. You could fill it in. Yeah. I just I, I, I just thought, I don't want to give this film the satisfaction of being the film that broke me. But you know what? As I'm getting older, that argument isn't cutting it anymore because I don't think I mind. My pride is depreciating in value faster than my savings <laughs> at this stage. Certainly faster than the value of my time. So I genuinely start gathering my stuff and just wait for the big thing to really piss me off so I can go. But after that, it's really much of a muchness, you know, more of the exact same thing. Once you've seen the first 20 minutes, you've seen everything the film has to offer. So I never get pushed over that line and just get up. But this was handily one of the most torturous experiences I've had in a cinema this year. I truly hated this film. (laughs) One star. Wow. Sorry. What did you think? (laughs) Oh, I wasn't... So I really only came into it like I'd sort of like walked past the living room a couple of times and was like, oh, they're watching like knockoff Star Wars. Yeah. And then I'd come back and be like, oh, there's a guy like, is that? Oh, it's, uh, and I've forgotten his, uh, oh. uh, Digimon. And I was like, oh, we spent, we spent like, yeah. yeah, we spent like half an hour being like, what's his name? <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, and then I just sort of sat in the lounge for the last half an hour and I didn't I guess I didn't have any of the bad blood that you had of having to watch the first bit of this film God. I sat down and I was like look all these I can I know what this is yeah. this this is it sort of gave me reminded me of that uh, what was it called Bright which was oh another, yeah yeah just like another action film straight to Netflix it was just yep. like with some big you know big star it had will smith in it yep and, which i didn't i didn't hate bright it was fine no but bright really was directed by david ayer david ayer and snyder are peas in a pod they both worked yeah. for the dceu in the early okay days. that makes sense because yeah. it's just i just had the same thing of being like i know what sort of film this is i don't have to think at all mm. and then yeah i was just there for the final action sequence so that's a lot easier i think because all you have <sighs> to sit there is sit through the final like there's no character at this point so it doesn't no. matter all is they're just going to smack each other a bit and jump off some stuff and whatever. Yeah. And, you know, me and my dad sort of had a nice little giggle at it. Yeah. Um, and then it finished and I was like, great. Can't <laughs> wait for the next one. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't... Um, I mean, look, I didn't come out... I didn't finish hating it, but I think that's because I only sat through the last little bit. Yeah. Um, well, that's good. I'm glad. It's just. But I also didn't think it was good. <laughs> no, I hated the action as the thing. The action yeah. was, for me, so representative of everything that Snyder does that irritates yeah. me. It wasn't great, but it was also, you know, when you're just sitting there at, like, 10.30 at night and just yeah. want to stare at the TV like this, like... <laughs> Under those circumstances, Jen the Film Critic recommends this film. I do not recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if, you want, if you want, like, bland, but it's... I didn't look nice either it's, no i agree that it's it felt like the entire thing was filmed against a green screen yeah very why weird. so many films look like that now i know aquaman so 2 many from are. the trailer looked yeah. like that yeah it is the trailer them make, are. is there a single real set in aquaman 2 i i honestly don't know maybe the stuff set inside of his house 
Oh yes, you know. yeah. The trailer made it look like it was like yeah, it's like in the trailer because it's cutting so fast between scenes. Yeah. It was really jarring. Like, oh, that's a real house. Okay, green screen, green screen, green screen. That's a real house. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. look, released the previous week were two movies for Christmas uh-huh. that demonstrate that the big budget blockbuster is still very much alive and well overseas. Okay. <laughs> One of them, I think, you'll be able to join in on because from yeah, yeah. From the obscene to the divine, because one week after, uh, before Rebel Moon and Aquaman, we got the blockbuster event of the season with a very special and distinguished gentleman who came to town just in time for Christmas. He did. Oh, no. They say they... it's gonna snow. Ho, ho, Godzilla! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Phil. I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You spent all your note-taking time just writing that. I ending. came up with that two weeks ago when I gave Jack his birthday pre- his Christmas present. <laughs> I'm glad it's being finally canonized here within the podcast. Great, perfect, perfect. Wait, you're recycling content for our podcast? How dare you? I mean, I polished it. Jack was just a test audience. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) Yes, Godzilla minus one. Godzilla minus one. Which you have also seen. As they say in Japanese. (gasps) Godzilla Godzilla minus one. one. That's how they say it in the trailer. It's always Godzilla minus one. Minus one. And now they've released a black and white version, which has its own name. And so ah. they've got a new trailer out, which is Godzilla. Minus one. Minus color. Minus color. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You yes, I have seen this. I did see With this film. friend of the podcast, although she's never appeared on it, Sarah Keep. Or listened to it. Sarah Keep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or acknowledged its existence, Sarah yeah. Keep. Sarah Keep. Uh, yes, Sarah and I went to see it. Uh, together we yeah. had a lovely time yeah you're gonna Spoilers. have a lovely time with this gen- i liked this film with this big <laughs> japanese man because yes oh you know i don't want to gender godzilla yeah i think it prefers it that <laughs> it that <laughs> i think it prefers it ah <laughs> when addressing directly yeah um yes it's godzilla minus one special effects maestro takeshi yamazaki uh mm. steps up to take on this monster movie which could well serve as a prequel to the original godzilla i think I've seen some people get a bit sniffy online about it being a prequel, but one point there's, there's a through point throughout the film that the events of the story are being covered up and disguised. Mm. Nobody knows what's really going on there, so you know. Yeah, true, you know. true, 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 true. There's still capacity for this to be a, a prequel or a standalone or the start of something new. Who's to say? Mm. Doesn't matter. But yes, the film starts in the final stages of the Second World War as mm-hmm. a kamikaze pilot flees battle. The beautiful Ryanosuke oh, Kamiki as Koichi. Mm. And after a terrifying encounter with Japan's favourite big lizard, he returns to mainland Japan in an effort to rebuild his life and country. Uh, But the spectre of war and nuclear trauma is never far away. And by spectre, I mean a giant, terrifying, fire-breathing lizard. This this metaphor is embodied in a giant, (laughs) terrifying, fire-breathing lizard. It's a bit more overt than Alan Rene. I'll say that. I say that every day. But, oh, I've just noticed that uh, two of these paragraphs just trail off and don't finish. So let's see what happens with those. (laughs) Wing it, Paul. Will, (laughs) audience, let's guess at what point Paul starts making it up. (laughs) How first to engage with this film? Just on a surface level, this is a fabulous blockbuster. It establishes the stakes beautifully. It humanizes its characters so you really care about the action. And... And the lizard looks good. The lizard looks good. It really delivers on big 
you know, spectacle action. You know, apparently this has a significant, this has about the same budget as the Marvel's casting budget. But nevertheless, it just looks spectacular. It keeps finding ways to make the action feel real and relatable. Mm. There's a bit of uh, a crew of news reporters on a roof and the building they're on gets destroyed and it slides and you you travel with them on like a mounted camera as the pavement suddenly flies up to meet them and it's horrifying. Yeah, it actually, as well as being sort of an exhilarating feeling of watching all these buildings get destroyed, there's also just the horror of it. It really puts you in the place of the people beneath Godzilla's feet and forces you to imagine, Mm. you know, how well you'd gone on trying to get away from this thing. It really puts the horror back into the franchise. Yeah. Let's see if the next paragraph addressed any of the things (laughs) I've just improvised. (laughs) What an adventure we're on. Furthermore, furthermore, this one also cuts off. Uh, furthermore, <laughs> you have the eloquent metaphor of the national identity of Japan and its attitude mm. to its actions during the war, uh, coming with the benefit of some 80 years of hindsight. Uh, mm. Still, it's a beautiful statement about the value of individual life, which is a wonderful concept to engage with when you make a monster movie, because Godzilla movies always involve lots of collateral damage, unnamed sure. hundreds trampled underfoot. Uh, to make this a film about those people while still delivering on the destruction and devastation means that this film succeeds in something that the Godzilla movies have largely abandoned since the 50s, with the exception of Shin Godzilla. Horror. The sheer horror of being caught mm. up in a Godzilla raid, which is something the 2014 American film tried to capture, but forgot they actually to actually make you care about the human characters. <laughs> okay, I, literally, human characters was the only bit I missed off there. Oh, okay. <laughs> and because the horror is real, it's... The urge to see Godzilla overcome is real, yes. adding real emotional stakes to the action. It's a, a perfect blockbuster in that sense, and it's all yeah, absolutely all, all five stars for me. Oh yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. This is great. I really enjoyed it. Really good film. Very fun. <laughs> yeah, loved the characters. Loved the human drama. Yeah. As I have learned recently, Godzilla is not films about a big lizard. I mean, there is a big lizard, but it's yeah. films about people. It always is. Having their people lives. Even in the really silly 1960s ones, you still yeah. got human characters like yeah. Glenn from Invasion of the Astro Monster. Glenn. Glenn. <laughs> Glenn. Yeah, I loved Glenn. Glenn is the best. He's accidentally He's a... falling in love with an alien woman. Spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers, everyone, from Invasion Spoilers. of the Astro Monster. Invasion of, invasion of the Astro Monsters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. And this one, yeah. oh, yeah. Koichi was great. And yeah. I mean, yes, his PTSD is mostly caused by Godzilla. Yeah. But it's also just because of the war and yeah. how everyone treats him and his, his, his struggles with how he behaved and what he expects of himself and his relationship, but how he tries to be- behave to all the people around him. And it's just got such a lovely cast of little... Yeah, a bunch of misfits of sort, but they're great. Well, sort of, except for one is also a great scientist who ends up leading the. Uh... <laughs> he's great. <laughs> he's I great. love. He's he's really good. Who's he? Let's uh, get former... the doctor. Yeah, former Navy crew technician. No, that's not going to be him. Kenji Noda, former weapons engineer. That's him. Yes. Unless that's the guy. No, he was a. He was the Navy weapons. Anyway. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's that's Hidetaka wonderful... Yoshioka as okay. Kenji Noda. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, honestly, all three of the guys on the little boat that at one point uh, Koichi gets yeah. like posted to work on, yeah, or he takes a job on, 
are just wonderful. And a they mind just... clearing boat, which yeah. still has some really chill Studio Ghibli vibes to it. Even if there's really a does. lovely little acoustic guitar bit that plays as they're just clearing out all of these yeah. mines and oh just God. doing their little job on a lovely little wooden boat. <laughs> yeah, bonding. You know, bonding. And Being aside, cute characters. Aside from Noda, the other two people on the ship. Yeah. Are the most anime esque people yes, you've ever seen in your right. life. The facial expressions, especially the captain. He's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> he really um, gives his all. Kamenosuke uh, Sasaki. Okay, yeah, he's I've, great. I've got a picture of him here. He is great. He's got that great sort of anime mouth. Yeah, the firm face. Yeah, oh, it's very good. But the young guy <laughs> as well. Oh, it's brilliant. And I loved. I loved his. His love interests yes uh, that's minami uh minami uh hamabe yeah Um, narika narika oshi yeah noriko she's wonderful she's really good and just the whole relationship there and just oh i just love the whole film so the neighbor as well sakura Sakura ando as sumiko yeah you could take godzilla out of this and you still have a good film (laughs) but then you add godzilla in and you're like right now this is great because yeah. the action scenes are all wonderful yeah and although yes of course the cgi they've made godzilla look real chunky yeah like a real <laughs> chumpy chunky boy and the way he just walks through yeah. tokyo just yeah. like boom boom barely moving his top half yeah. which you could it could be kind of comical because he looks kind of like an old godzilla yeah but it's terrifying this idea that you just keep plowing through yeah he just is and completely... there's nothing you can do to stop him <laughs> Yeah, he's mostly completely indifferent to you. Yeah. It's really it scary. Real. Yeah, some real good effects as well. I love, um, like, the atomic his back breath. plates. Yeah. Uh, yeah, his, yeah, the atomic breath, his back plates just felt so chunky and real. Yeah. It was great. I loved the whole film. Wonderful film. Great time. Great. Definitely watch it. Watch, watch on a big screen. Yeah, it's big as big, big screen. Find. And the music is great too because it often yes. incorporates bits of Akira Ikef- um, Ifakube's um original soundtrack oh does it yeah the whole... oh i thought it was nice anyway <laughs> when he shows up and it's just like dun, 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 dun. that is original uh... 1954 godzilla as is the response theme of it's yeah really well integrated and cool. just yeah if it's a wonderful sequel really or you know remake or whatever you want to call it because it felt so much like a great modernization of this yes. concept yes yeah. yeah it's like they took they knew what worked yeah and they and then they went and now that we have more budget and more technology and more skills what can yeah. we do with that yeah rather than just being like we have lots of money let's make the whole thing cgi and who cares about the people that you know like not you know they knew what worked. Yeah. Did exactly. need more asteroid, astro monsters for me, though. Yeah, I'm really hoping the sequel does involve aliens. Sequel has more aliens. I feel aliens like the American Godzilla franchise might be more likely to arrive for aliens than... Aliens and sp- spandex <laughs> aliens. Yes, please. Let's hope. <laughs> Fingers crossed. But look, I have another big foreign blockbuster that I think you're going to love. Mm. Okay. Because speaking of perfect blockbusters, France has something to say. <laughs> Released the same day as the big boy minus one was... The Three Musketeers Part 2, Miladi. Ah, cool. Yes. You may remember we reviewed Part 1 back yes, in the summer. Yes, I do remember that. D'Artagnan. I remember you being complimentary. I was very complimentary, and you're about to get a sort of reprieve of that, because <laughs> I remarked that the film felt perfect for Christmas, and sure enough, here we have Part 2, a Great. classic swashbuckling adventure story. They're just It feels every part like the sort of adventure movies of the 90s that mm. used to get here, like the Zorros and the Mummies and... That kind of thing, because it's just charismatic characters swept up in a, a likely plot. 
and fighting their way out of trouble in beautiful sets. Mm. They have a great sense of adventure. And yeah, D'Artagnan quests to rescue his lover Constance from the villainous Cardinal Richelieu and his agents, including the deadly femme fatale Melody de Winter, played with mm. moustache-twirling flair and effortless allure by Eva Green, mm-hmm. uh, with his comrades Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. They tear across 17th century France, fighting, drinking, and occasionally getting a bit saucy with people they shouldn't. <laughs> so it's wonderful. It's exactly as much fun as it sounds. I love the action in this part. I love that the action in this part is more focused on a single location because for the okay. most part, it revolves around a single siege and sort of mm. bits of intrigue spanning you know, around it and away from it. Uh, there's various sojourns and subplots, but always draws back to the central conceit that there's a ticking clock here that they need to try and resolve things in time for. Um, you know, that and the kidnapped lady, of course. Mm. And the pacing is perfect, as is the tone, effortlessly moving from comedy to very affecting melodrama. It's light, but it doesn't feel disposable. It feels it is quite affecting. And the most exciting sequences do involve Eva Green's melody, as the treacherous as she treacherously assists and hinders the musketeers as she as suits her plans. So she's an excellent villain, just because you never know if she's going to be helpful or oh, <laughs> detriment to the situation. <laughs> I, like that. I love that. And incidentally, I saw this with Katie, who had not seen part one, uh, okay. but the film starts off with a slightly frantic but very thorough summary of the first films so that should get you up to speed. So, yeah, if anyone gets a chance to see this at the cinema, don't let unfamiliarity with the material deter you, because okay. it's well worth seeing on the big screen. Cool. And the door is left open at the end for maybe some more sequels, and in complete contrast to Rebel Moon, I would absolutely love to see more of this world and these characters. So, yeah, four stars. I really enjoyed Great. this one. Very fun. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just... could, could do with a big lizard in it, though. It could have had That's a bigger lizard in it. A mm. bigger lizard. There mm. was one lizard. A gecko on the background, in the background on a wall. I mean, Eva Green has big... Actually, it's mainly cat energy, but there's a bit of evil fire-breathing lizard in there, too. Okay, cool. She brings cool. that. Cool. Just make her bigger. No think, bigger. Yeah. No just, bigger. Yeah. <laughs> just make a giant Eva Green movies, you cowards. Yeah, do it. Uh, she seduces and destroys various capital cities. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! But you know, this is what the adults will be doing and were doing in December. They're off seeing mm. Three Musketeers and Godzilla and trying to ignore Aquaman and Rebel Moon. But what about the family? The family. What are the family meant to be doing? Well, December started with the attempted big family movie of the season, and its continued prevalence in UK cinemas right now suggests it might be working. It's Paul King's Wonka. Wonka. I thought Wonka was coming up. Wonka. Wonka. The Paddington... <laughs> sounds like a swear, doesn't it? It does, you say you, it in Wonka. A, in a kind of London it's accent. A, sounds like you'd, a swear you would make up for a kid's film. Yeah, true. Look at those Wonkas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Paddington 1 and 2 director turns to the world of Roald Dahl. Oh, it's him, isn't Yeah, it? to tackle mm. one of his tougher creations, the enigmatic mm. and slightly sinister Willy Wonka. Mm-hmm. Timothy Chalamet plays the mischievous eponymous chocolatier as he comes to the big city hoping to make his fortune and share his chocolates with the world. Or chocolates, as he would say. Unfortunately, <laughs> he runs afoul of the three big chocolatiers of, who ruthlessly quash any and all competition. Teaming up with some of the other down and outs of this society, he hatches a scheme to break free of his bondage and realise his chocolatey dreams. Mm. It has the Paddington qualities of being very earnest and big-hearted, but it, prote- it te- protects itself from many criticisms with this quirky sense of silliness that also is just a slight insincerity. 
Okay. You can feel a little petty or merely or miserly criticizing a film that's just so open in its intended purpose of just warming the heart a bit and amusing, you know, families and kids. Um, but unfortunately, it is also a fairly cynical corporate exercise masquerading mm. as innocence. So <laughs> I do feel a little better having at it. <laughs> Go for it, Paul. <laughs> it's very safe. Go for the throat. <laughs> it's very safe. There are no yeah. edges here you might that kids might hurt themselves on or filmmaking flurries to excite the imagination or mm. transcend the material. Um, uh, sorry, not transcend the material, transcend the stated purpose because the material mm. does have edges because it's Roald Dahl and he hated kids. Yeah, <laughs> and I wish that this director hated children a bit more. Um, <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> now, perhaps this could best be summarized by looking at the various musical numbers because this is a musical in spite oh, of what the marketing... Realize. Yeah, because the marketing okay. didn't want you to know it's a stealth musical <laughs> like the new Mean Girls musical. film. <laughs> oh, is that a musical That's too? a musical. <laughs> okay. They've wow. Very much... Yeah, this is one of the biggest cases of don't look at me, I'm not a musical musicals that you've ever seen in your life because okay. it's, it's absolutely a musical. The f- opens are a musical number. And the songs have this very simple rhyming structure and even simpler rhymes, uh, okay. sometimes very tortured rhymes that involve mispronouncing or making up words. Otherwise, the rhymes are just plainly blunt. Like, for a moment, life doesn't seem quite so bad. For a moment, I kind of forgot to be sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. Yeah. Now, this some of this is on purpose. The songs are silly and simple for comedic effect. But then mm. it, it, that line I just told you is from a dramatic song, a poignant song. Mm. So, yeah, often Katie and I felt yeah. we, we weren't sure if we were laughing with or at the film. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it has a few good numbers, one or two. But I, it, they didn't sweep me away like Paddington. The whole film didn't. And I think part of that could be down to Timothy Chalamet. I like Chalamet. But I do think he struggles to find the character here. Mm. But that's also a, skip, a script problem. Because I remember when he was talking about his first appearance on film, uh, Gene, well, uh, sorry, when talking about Wonka's first appearance on film, Gene Wilder explained that he did the gag with the cane. Do you know the one I mean where he's yes, walking? Yeah, 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 yeah. The cane stands up and he rolls. Yeah. He did that because he hoped after that no one would know whether or not he was lying or telling the truth. Yeah. And that, I think, is essential to the character. Is he a mm. good guy or not? Is he a genius or a fraud? Is he, is everything going according to plan or is he just not that bothered, you know? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. That's what makes him fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this film just wants to make him a little bit too straightforward. Wants to make him Paddington. Sure. And, you know, the handsome romantic hero who's a little eccentric sometimes. And Chalamet's voice decisions, especially his pronunciation of the word chocolate, is... <laughs> <laughs> which is a fairly important word in this film is a little off-putting in just the wrong way what what are you doing i'm making chocolate of course okay interesting what are you, what are you doing <laughs> what are you doing aren't you american <laughs> just, god ultimately with a wonka film and with any Roald Dahl adaptation there should just be a little dash of darkness kids yes. love that little hint of they cruelty do. or malice and the chaos of the world which they know exists and want to see reflected in the world because it makes it make sense mm. and makes the ultimate victory of good feel rewarding and comforting this film has villains and adversity but it's all just a little too cozy and you know compare it to matilda the musical from last year which is a fairly damning comparison for wonka because it really does excel in every place that this film falls down you know it has mm. matilda the musical has great songs great lead authentic charm these things are lacking here so oh 
and the film gets really, really close to maybe addressing the whole colonial implication of the Oompa Loompa thing, <laughs> but then kind of vindicates the colonizer accidentally, so... Oh no. Whoops. Oh, wow. Uh-oh. All I wanted was to steal a little of your resources, but you had to go <laughs> all uppity about it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Maybe just... Cool it. You could have just... Maybe just leave the Oompa Loompas out. Yeah, just don't. It is a- you can't make a film with Oompa Loompas in nowadays. No. Without... Being, I don't know, you've got to make a very different film to the one you were thinking of originally. (laughs) It's a tricky thing to address in a family film, but you could be done in a jokey way, but not if you're making a film where the joke is Rowan Atkinson gets chased by a giraffe. It's sweet, but ultimately it's just empty calories. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Maybe I could try and end each review on a pun. No, Paul, no. Uh, let, me go back to, let me go back to Rebel Moon. It's out of this world bad. <laughs> um, it's three stars. and it, Okay. I feel like I almost taught myself into lower, but it's harmless enough. It's, um, oh, yeah, it's fine. It's just not great. Yeah. It's a shame. That's what it is. Mm. Do you want to talk about something completely different? Yeah, go on. Let's go to the dark side, because I'm very <laughs> excited now to talk about one of the most intense films of the year, which is, of course, British. It's Sam H. Freeman and Ang Chun Ping's Femme. Let me tell you about Femme. Let me tell you about Femme. Tell me about Femme. The premise of this film is all you need to get an idea of what you're in for. Nathan Stewart Jarrett plays Jules, a drag artist who is assaulted after a show by a violent gang member, Preston, played by George McKay. His confidence is shattered and he stops performing. He gradually plucks up the courage to visit a gay bathhouse where he encounters his attacker, Preston. Preston is closeted Mm. and doesn't recognize Jules. Jules then decides uh, because he's out of drag. Jules Mm. then makes the ill-advised decision to seduce Preston with a long-term view to get his revenge. But as the ruse goes on and Preston, uh, as Jules becomes goes deeper and deeper into Preston's world, the plan becomes more complicated. Yikes. Yikes, indeed. Oh, God, this is not an easy watch, but my God, is it compelling. Mm. I think the hardest thing is just stepping into the theatre. Once you're in there, it'll just grab you and not let you go. It's sexually very fraught, Mm. uh, almost unbearably tense. We follow Jules as he's irresistibly drawn deeper into the lion's den, and you just want to scream run at the screen, but the brutal nature of the original crime and the vivid realisation of the subsequent trauma does make you thirst for justice Mm. in the same way that Jules does. So there's this visceral thrill seeing him get bolder and more assertive and thinking, oh, he might just do this right, but then the fear (laughs) that he might not is just absolutely gut-wrenching. And aside from the masterful direction, it's driven by our two leads. Stuart Jarrett is gorgeous and vulnerable, and has but has this vicious streak that is also quite captivating. It's you know deep cutting nature, you know that sometimes comes out a little in the sort of drag performance in a sort of sassy way, but then hmm. you know comes out in a much scarier way later on. And George McKay is just terrifying. He perfectly. Yeah. He's the lead guy from 1917. Yeah. Oh, I thought so. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was him. My God. Yeah. He's got a scary face. Well, look sorry, at... George, <laughs> but you've, it's good for acting. Like you've got to wait. That face could be very scary. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just see if this is gonna work. Yeah. Google George McKay Femme. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Have you got that first image of the two of them in the car? Yeah. God. Yeah. It's it's the mouth. It's the eyes. But that is. Mm. That's why it's so brilliant, because he's got this sort of 
tight-mouthed, ignorant rage. You know, it's sort of mm. all neck acting, kind of, you know, what you say, big mate. Big chin jutting. Yeah, big chin, what you say, mate. Say what that you again. Saying? You know, typically reserved for people who get beaten up by Jason Statham. But McKay mm-hmm. also has these big, soulful, beautiful eyes that yeah. actually, this is the most terrifying part of the character, is the horrible tragedy to him. Like, he's been cursed to be this. There's so much about toxic masculinity in here, which is so difficult to own up to and just address the, in a way that reminds me of Starred Up a really tense uh, prison okay. drama from a, f- a few years ago I don't know it'd be very easy to make this a very vulgar and bipolar character where it's like oh what suddenly he's just not him anymore but there's just this tremendous sense of a complete person with him mm. and with Jules and you know what a year for British film it's been and Femme might be the best although How to Have Sex wow. is right there too and yeah. it's kind of just amazing that these two films are just right there these two controversial sort of edgy films are here having these conversations you know and it's just a painful thrilling descent into darkness gut-wrenching twist on the revenge thriller and as raw a character study as you'd ever hope to see but what really makes the film devastating is the empathy it engenders for people it's very uncomfortable to empathize with Mm -hmm. um but is as a result a very profound work of humanitarian filmmaking so it's five stars it just great really bought me away yeah Ugh. wow not sure if i <laughs> i kind of want to watch it but also yeah. i'm not sure if i'm ever going to be in the mood to watch that <laughs> yeah i think what might get you in is just a sort of morbid curiosity yeah that might pull you in and i think the film definitely rewards that but it's going to okay. also you know make sure that you leave with the right things okay yeah interesting because that's what Jules ultimate you, you get the impression that part of this for Jules is just the the urge to see more of this guy's world and his life to just see mm. what, how it kind of works and what creates this and to know more about the person who attacked him it's just you know but also the yeah. anger oh there's a lot there's a lot going on Ugh. wow it's quite sexy in a kinky way <laughs> mm. okay I think there's that too mm interesting yeah you thought is that what you think will get me on board is that, what you're saying? that might you know just a couple of more of the listeners <laughs> might check out fam if they know that there's gonna sure. be some yeah full-on stuff going on sure okay 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 all been in that right. headspace right uh, and what's your pun for this film oh god now I'm forcing you to do puns. Uh, you, you, uh, you may get a pass on this one. The only drag here is having to leave the cinema. You have to leave, though. Yeah. You can't live there, Paul. I know. I know you've tried. I have tried. And I'll tell you someone who's trying to make it more possible for me to just stay in there and live my life through the cinema <laughs> lens, and that's Vim Vendors. Vim Vendors. Thanks, because Vim. It's time to put your 3D glasses on because it's time okay. for a slow art documentary. <laughs> in 3D? Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's what all of the funders said to Vim Vendors. But then he said, yes, Anselm. Okay, Anselm. Anselm. No, well, Vim Vendors directs a ponderous and immersive exploration of the works of German painter and sculptor Anselm Kiefer. And what an interesting, how limiting those descriptions are of him. He does things mm-hmm. like create these giant warehouses full of these odd landscapes made of clay and dust. You know, mm. this kind of thing, like huge inst- installation work. Um, and we see various works and hear him talk about his process and see some recreations of Anselm's younger life to help illuminate his connection to childhood fascinations with myth and history and that kind of thing. So Wim Wenders has made, he, you know, most people know him as this great new wave German director who made films like um, Wings of Desire and Paris, Texas. 
yes. I've oh, seen yeah. Paris, Texas. You've seen Paris, Texas? So I have. That's your vendors. And, okay. you know, he's part of the new German cinema crowd, so he was also in there with Herzog. And... Mm. That does things to a person, uh, sure. uh, That does things to a people. And he's made a few documentaries about great people that he admires. He did a great film called Pina, about modern dancing, Salt of the Earth, about a photographer, Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, which I reviewed at Cannes, mm. um, all the way back to Notebook on Cities and Clothes, a film he made about uh, Yoji Yamamoto, a Japanese fashion designer in the 90s, um, in spite of Vendor's uh, self-proclaimed disinterest in fashion. <laughs> so he makes all these documentaries because he's fascinated with people and the people oh, who make great work mm. and what sort of drives them. Mm. But Kiefer, Kiefer uh, Anhelm uh, Kiefer is an interesting figure for vendors because in many ways their work mirrors each other. Um, both were very interested in German national identity and masculine identity in particular after the war. You mm. know, Germany post-war is a very ideologically interesting place with, you know, an overt attempt at denazification from the sort of sure. allies, um, a sort of expectation of shame on a national front, a continued lingering belief in the extremely powerful propaganda of the Nazi Germany. So there's a lot mm. going on there, which leads to a very interesting cultural scene. Um, yeah, and Kiefer is interested in exploring the legacy and, of the war and in challenging the country's will to forget, especially in the context of the great economic miracle of the 1970s. But we don't just experience the story in a chronological way, sort of seeing his work evolve over time, you know, with impact from things outside of it. There's a great deal of time spent just watching Kiefer work, just seeing mm-hmm. how he creates his work, interspersed with archive footage, you know, interviews, reenactments. The effect is to explore his work in this really intuitive and flexible way. It's not a teleological approach that charts a journey to an end point where he is great artist now. You know, how sure. did we get here? Where did he fall short? What did he have to overcome? How did we get to end point? It's, it's everything. It feels like a holistic impression of a body of work that has immediate significance as well as just historical. You know, it's not just this is what happened you know this is like this is why it's still so good Mm. and i admit i wasn't familiar with the work before the film but the film presents everything as fresh and exciting and just like vendor's previous documentaries he's created a really bold piece of art in itself to celebrate the works of his subject and this is a it's a very unique cinematic experience that doesn't just show off the work but finds a whole new perspective it's a a piece of work in and of itself cool so yeah four stars cool Oh, nice, really interesting. Quite involving. It was. It's very interesting. Cool. Uh, Great. Ah, but now you can take your 3D glasses off. Well, what if I don't want to? You have to because you've got to take your glasses off and come into the new Disney film. Okay. <laughs> That's enough of this pretentious 3D movie stuff. <laughs> Time to dumb it down. Yeah. Uh, did you know that uh, Disney's 100 years old? Yeah, heard of it. Yeah, <clears throat> heard it is. Yeah, they're really trying to celebrate it, and they've done so by creating their sixty-second animated feature, a film that indulges in all of their worst instincts. It's Wish. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What have you heard of Wish? Um, not great things. Not great things. That's fair. Yeah. That's it. Literally, no one had anything to say about it apart from it's not very good. <laughs> That's fair. Ah, <laughs> uh, the story follows Asha, a young girl living in a kingdom where, oh, let's try and get this straight. There's a wizard who can grant wishes. And every mm-hmm. now and then he holds a ceremony to grant some wishes. But in order to be considered, you have to give up your memory of the wish. So okay. Asha auditions to work as an intern, I think, for the wizard. But after seemingly coming on to her, um, she turns out he turns out to harshly be filtering the wishes to ignore the ones that might disrupt the status quo. 
And so he does some evil stuff, which leads to Asher making a wish so hard that a falling star falls to Earth and causes all sorts of mischief. But perhaps it's the kind of mischief that this kingdom needs. Okay. Oh. It's an interesting... It's interesting. Previous Go on. previous pun of Anselm uh, takes art to a whole new dimension. Ha! Ah! Aha! Great, 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 Anselm. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. This. I'm not. I don't hate the. I don't hate the concept for this. Yeah, there's it a, could be okay. There's a lot going it on. Could be fun. The messaging yeah, yeah. is really. I'm not sure if... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, just, I'm not sure. I need the whole bit with the star falling down and the mischief. I well, think I just want to focus on the wizard and him being messed up. And uh, well, that yeah. is the premise. Unfortunately, that is. Yeah, I think it, that's probably an issue. <laughs> the the was the the uh, star comes down and you know makes the goat talk, like okay. Patrick Stewart. Although it turns out to be Alan Tudyk, I could have sworn. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it causes all sorts of zany antics. So. Yeah, the messaging is blandly upbeat. The tone is superficially sentimental. The music is generic mm. and incredibly forgettable. The comedy oh, no. is so broad and annoying, it reminds me of why I started to feel too old for Disney back in the 90s. It's oh, no. self-satisfied when it's trying to be referential and desperately unsuccessful when it tries to be original. And the art style is this bizarre attempt to create hand-drawn animation digitally, which makes it look like an AI trying to imitate Cartoon Saloon. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I can see some problems. Yeah. Let me try using fewer adjectives and get a bit more specific. Um, let's look at the messaging. There's a town. Depends upon the wizard to mediate whose dreams come true and shuts down a lot of the ones that might be too problematic. Mm. Okay. Vaguely anti-authoritarian state sentiment there. Yeah. Don't, like go- that. don't go to the government for support to make your dream happen. Make it happen for yourself or yes. on a more individual level. Don't expect magic to answer your problems. Yeah. Although our hero does later depend upon an external force and magic to realize her destiny. Yeah. It's the star, you know. So yeah. maybe the messaging is don't put your faith in man and mm. man-based justice, but instead in something greater than man, the unknowable cosmic force, whoever you believe them to be, but it's God. It's just God. Yeah, it's always yeah. God. It's always God. So p- always God. perfect American film in that respect. But this also works as an anti-Disney metaphor because the mouse house could definitely be seen as the arbiter of dreams and deciding Mm. who's, you know, come young filmmakers, bring your wishes and dreams to us and we shall decide if it gets released. And if it doesn't, you'll never want to think about them again because we'll have ruined them. (laughs) You know, and not to spoil anything, but in the end, there's still somebody deciding whose dreams get realized. Mm. So don't worry, everyone. It's not the horrific monopoly that's the problem. It's just the management, but it's cool now. (laughs) We have a woman. I bet. Oh, it's fine then. (laughs) There'll be a woman involved somewhere. Yeah, as long as you've got a woman visibly somewhere, (laughs) things are okay. (laughs) Progressive. Uh, You know, perhaps this is actually a a fitting centenary project for Disney because it's muddled and cynical, and I'm back on the adjectives now. Um, It's attempting (laughs) to recapture past glories without any clear instinct as to how to reinvent or take this thing in any kind of new direction. And the film's underperformance at the box office might just point the way to a brighter future for all audiences. Yeah, let's hope so. But my wish upon a star is that it would just go away. Two stars! Uh, two stars. Oh, wow. Okay. Not great. That's, yeah, that's, fair. Yeah. No, no, no. It, it um, was irritating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Mm. Disney can do great stuff, but um, they've sort of been wobbling a bit recently, I feel. They very much have. The past couple of years, yeah. Yeah. Elemental wasn't terribly good. No. It was, yeah. And Strange Worlds. It's yeah, been a while. Well, yeah. It has been a while since I had what, something. What, oh, I forget, the problem is I mix up studios. <laughs> well, Encanto and Soul. 
Encanto and Soul. Okay, yeah, yeah. I did enjoy both of those. Yeah. Soul particularly. Mm. I have. I did enjoy Encanto, but I watched it on a plane. I need to rewatch that so yeah. I can actually hear the music. I remember the songs <laughs> being good. That makes a big difference. Yeah. And I remember it liking does, the yes. characters, which also makes yes. a big yeah, difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What was I going to say? Uh, oh, I have no memory whatsoever of Raya and the Last Dragon. I didn't. I haven't seen it. No, I have, and I can't remember any of it. Mm. Yeah, so fair enough. that's not a great sign. No. Oh, and Turning Red. God, they make a Was lot of movies. Then? Yeah. Oh, I really enjoyed Turning Red. I remember liking it well enough, mm. but it's all getting a bit generic. <laughs> it's yeah. very samey. There's a lot maybe of stuff. Maybe the in... problem is that we're getting old. Well, maybe, but it's just hard to imagine. When we were kids, when we were young, a when Disney we movie young. would come out once a year, if that, mm, true. and would feel like an event. Now they just mm. pass so quickly, it's really hard to sort of imagine true. them living on in the same way that Frozen did. Frozen feels like the last mega yes. hit they managed with yes. kids. Yeah, I'm not sure they've had anything that's really stuck in the zeitgeist so much. I was singing "Let It Go." Yeah, it's not that much of a stretch of the imagination. I do, I did love Disney as a child and yeah. as a teenager and as a young adult and in now. my twenties, <laughs> and also now. <laughs> but yeah, like everyone was singing "Let It Go." Yeah, this is a big song. It was a big movie, yeah. and the sequel's pretty good too. I watched that not that long ago it's as well. Right. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I really like uh, the title song from it. Yes, the, the title, title Into the, the Unknown is good. Yeah. Into the Unknown's a belter. Yeah. Anyway, yes, yeah. I agree. I don't think they've had anything quite hit no. as much as Frozen. But then again, I don't have a small child, so what do I know? What do you know? What are the small children singing about? God knows what the small kids are up to these days. Mm. I'm just saying it was better when the leads were all white. Anyway. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> no, no. No. Joking. Come on now. Where no, people we don't do always know sometimes. we're joking. No, <laughs> obviously but we weren't on this occasion. It is fabulous that they've expanded <laughs> representation over the past few years. Although things yes, like the live-action Mulan movie rose questions about the nature of this representation. Exactly. Yeah. No, let's just ignore oh. all the live-action films. <laughs> you know what, Moana? Moana was post. Oh, Moana's great. Yeah, there we yes. go. Yes, yes, you're right. Yeah. Moana is the yes. I love Moana. Yeah. Yeah, I'd forgotten about Moana. I love it. Moana's really good, but I love it. Moana's great, and that soundtrack's amazing. Yeah, and that's got that's got multiple really good songs. It and has. That one is also one where I'll just see someone will just be like, you know, we'll say you're welcome, and then someone else is like, for those guys and the grass and green. I don't know any of the lyrics, <laughs> <That's fair. laughs> but you know, we'll sing along. Adults are singing it. That's a yeah. sign that you're, yeah, you're exactly. Your movie really did well. It is, and I think yeah. There's still an appetite there, and I'm still open to being moved by a Disney <laughs> film when it's not as cynical as Wish. But yeah, the last few... Oh God, I'm just looking through the last few now. Uh, I didn't see the Bob's Burgers movie, which is oh, produced okay. by them, but Lightyear, Strange World, Elemental oh, yeah. Wish. Yikes. Yeah, yeah, it's not. it's been a few hits. Uh, misses. Yeah. Recently. Yeah, they have rather. Oh dear. Anywho, we shall see how mm. they get on with whatever comes next. Come on, Disney, you can do it. You can do it, I guess. I hope you don't, though. <laughs> Come on, little guy. <laughs> Come on, the underdogs. We're cheering you on. <laughs> then, then you film the underdogs. Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, Who speaking... says dogs can't, underdogs can't play basketball? <laughs> no one. It doesn't say no so one. anywhere in the rule. Um, speaking of underdogs, let's talk about Napoleon. <laughs> Napoleon. Ooh. Destiny has led me to this review. <laughs> it's Ridley Scott's historical epic, Napoleon. I did feel... Similarly about House of... Go- oh, I, I didn't do a plot run. It's it's Napoleon. It's the life of Napoleon. Is he basically covering his career from the... It starts with the beheading of Marie Antoinette um, mm-hmm. and then follows his career sort of up to and including his banishment. So, 
Yeah, it's, it's all in there. Oh, there's St. Hel- Helena? I can Saint never remember Hans- which way. It's Elba and Helena. One of them oh, okay. he escaped from and, you know, uh, okay, started fine. a resurgency, which ended at sure. Waterloo, and the second one he died on. Okay. So, yeah, it's this, it goes all the way up to the second, you know, banishing. Mm. So, right. yeah, I felt similarly about this film to House of Gucci, which is that I wanted the film to make up its mind about what kind of film it wanted to be. Hmm. Is this high yeah. camp? Is this austere period drama, revisionist history, star-driven character study, war movie? It flits around and mm. doesn't do any of those things badly by any means. It's just tonally quite jarring. Yeah. But that's Ridley Scott. He's a very ambitious, mm. very undisciplined director these days who makes very <laughs> enjoyable messes. And at the end of it, you'll have seen some very impressive battle scenes, some very fine acting, some very silly and memorable acting. And after a few months, you'll struggle to remember it. It's It's been that way since the noughties, you know, just mm. glimpses of former brilliance. Because what are we learning about the idea of Napoleon here? You know, it's it's pinning the whole thing on the idea that the relationship with Josephine was the key factor in his life. Unfortunately, that yeah. doesn't mean we get to spend a lot of time with the film's greatest you know, assets, which is Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby, in particular them together. Kirby is spectacular as Josephine. She, um, you'll you'll know her from uh, the Mission Impossible film. She's the sort of scary uh, queen kind of lady with the white hair. Oh yes, she's very yes, good. I know who you mean. Yeah, she's very mm. good and she's brilliant, Josephine uh, as Josephine. Um, the most exciting moments are her asserting herself and sort of laying out the terms for her relationship with Napoleon, where she takes charge, okay. and then later when history destiny forces them apart destiny when it forces them apart the powerlessness that you're led Mm. to feel there is all the more effective because of her performance and that's very good but we don't learn much about what he actually stood for why he was so beloved by his men why the european establishment hated him so much beyond just expansionism you know Mm. did i say establishment in any way correctly European yeah, establishment. So. That'll do, yeah. There's... I think so. I feel like I really fell ass over head. There's nothing to indicate why he's different from the rulers around him. You know, Miles Jupp is in it, inexplicably, okay. as the, um, I think, king of Austria at one stage. And it's just, why right. Why is this man different, <laughs> other than the fact that he's Miles Jupp? You know? Yeah. But, Interesting. you know, film has no obligation to fact, but it ought to be pursuing truth. And I just feel like this film didn't go further than just getting the hat right. And actually, the sure. film kind of vindicates Abel Gantz and Stanley Kubrick, who both struggled to realize their full versions, visions of Napoleon on the big screen, but compromised. You know, Abel Gantz wanted to make a nine part, you know, historical drama and settled on just making the first part, which is still five hours long. So... <laughs> fair okay and kubrick didn't that's one way to get around it <laughs> we'll just make, you know I what i'd love to do nine one-hour films you can't find can i do one nine-hour film <laughs> go on no i think the plan was to make nine eight more movies of a similar length no yeah dude it was the 20s you can do what you like yeah fine <laughs> no one had anything better to do <laughs> god the number of reels fair. that must have come on reels are about <laughs> 10 to 20 minutes depending on jeez yeah okay god almighty and then yeah stanley kubrick of course never managed to make a napoleon film but instead made barry linden so could mm. compromise so yeah the compromise <laughs> just make an entirely different film. just make a masterpiece is, the, is what you compromise on <laughs> different yeah. masterpiece both of them are masterpiece the first napoleon film that he did actually make uh, make and barry linden are both significantly superior to this film which feels obscene to say because of course that's <laughs> one of the greatest films ever made these two films um but it turns out actually quite hard to make a film of napoleon and perhaps this 
Mm. was Ridley Scott's Waterloo. Three stars, I'm out, come on! (laughs) Couldn't escape if he wanted to. (laughs) I was defeated, you won the pun war. (laughs) But you know what, Um, I'll say. Yeah, no, 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 I was going to say please move us on. (laughs) Well, the same time, there was another epic released, which perhaps had more gravitas than Napoleon... It's The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. We return to the districts and their yearly death tournament 64 years before Katniss Everdeen's first time in the arena. Mm. And we follow a young Cor- Coriolanus Snow, played by Tom Blythe, as he becomes a mentor for the spunky young tribute Lucy Gray Braid. And my God, mm. will you remember both of her first names by the end of the film? yes they do come up they come up quite a lot (laughs) lucy gray lucy gray lucy gray lucy gray so yeah and she's played by rachel ziegler of west side story fame i famously or famously for us previously described as a woman so attractive it looks like she's cg (laughs) together they must find a way for her to win so that she can return to her district alive and so that he can try and save his little family from poverty in the capital Tragic. Tragic. Why I why a why a lass? Why a adaptations? Why I why a adaptations are always a bit of a strange beast. Because mm-hmm. the rules and expectations of the genre are like a framework that you kind of need to engage with to understand why certain things are happening. Not necessarily a yeah. formula, but a set of conventions that the film must include, even if it involves bending its narrative over its knee in order to try and shape it. Like there will be a love triangle. You know, there will be a chosen one and a destiny and an sure. uprising. And it's like, it's a bit like horror in that sense, but with a slightly more narrow choice of settings because it's it's going to be a dystopian future. Mm. And to be clear, there have been some wonderful examples of the genre and I really enjoy the first two Hunger Games films at the very least, but fairly mm-hmm. warm feelings about all of them. This film does feel a little contrived to hit all of the beats. Mm. And it also inherits a slightly challenging structural issue from the book. Have you read it? Yes, you I have. have. So you know that we're dealing with a game of two halves here. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. The first half is a contracted and only really superficially different, you know, run mm. of the first two Hunger Games stories. Yeah. And then the second half is this entirely different and, you know, f- cinematically significantly more interesting story that arrives just a bit too late and feels mm. rather hurried as a result. And I don't necessarily have a good solution for that. And in some ways, I quite like it. It's reminiscent of the old school epics where the big chariot race would happen two hours in and then there would just be another hour of Jesus stuff. Yeah. You're like, wow, it's ended. Wait, you you moved the mouse and the, the time bar came up at the bottom of the screen. Is there another hour left of this? Oh, my God. Oh, Aftermath. No. Aftermath. Falling action. Yeah, an interval would have been great between these two parts. Not for comfort's mm. sake, but just to help delineate the experience a little bit. Sure. Um, but yeah, the, so the structure is challenging, but far more significant is the problem with the central character. Because you have Tom Blythe playing Coriolanus Snow, who is going to grow up to be, you know, big evil President the ba- Snow. The bad guy. The bad yeah. guy, you know, played by Donald Sutherland in the yes. original films. He's going to be the ultimate guy, the guy you hate and want to see get got, you know. Yeah. So... This needs to be a sort of Godfather-esque kind of descent here. Mm. A slow chipping away of morals and characters and pragmatism sneaking in and, you know, all of the sort of soul and humanity leaving this guy. And I've spoken to some people who do feel that he's, you know, an unpleasant character from the beginning. I didn't get a sense of that. He just seemed like a Byronic hero who, 
you mm. know, is is deeply troubled and sort of romantic with his white coiffed hair. And then he suffers some misadventures and he gets a bit angry and shouty near the end. And that's kind of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the sequel, mm. this book, well enough, but it's not a patch on the original. Sure trilogy for me um and that character yeah it's hard it's hard to tell a story about a character yeah it's hard to tell that kind of story yeah yeah, you're right it needs to be a kind of godfather approach and he just sort of more is just like he's just pootling along yeah you can get the motivation that he wants the pride and honor of his family to be restored and that's perhaps the most important thing to him more than anything that is interesting because the family are in it a lot at first Mm, but you don't yeah. really get a great sense of that connection later on. No, yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, because he's he, the book just moves away from yeah. him. But um, you know, I don't. It is tricky. He just sort of it, you could probably sense that he's maybe not the greatest guy. But yeah, I don't. He doesn't seem like out yeah. and out <laughs> evil at the start. Which, yeah, um, I don't know. I can't remember well yeah. enough. I felt yeah. There's moments. There's little moments where he makes the choice, yeah. and you're like, "Oh, that's the evil. Cho- you made the evil choice because that was the easier choice." Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not sure it was. You know, I, 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 yeah. I'm not sure for me it was enough to go from a guy who was, you know, generally okay, maybe a bit of a wally, yeah. to full on being, you know, evil ruler of this yeah. country by the end of this this book. You could imagine yeah. maybe in the sixty years in between, more happens. But uh, maybe then it should have been a story told over 60 years rather than just over... uh, True. And, you know, I have to... A year or whatever it is. I have two reference points for this, but they are both very lofty. One of them is sort of Lucien Lacombe, you know, excellent French film, (laughs) which just, you know, explores the idea of the sort of detached, mellow, high-functioning psychopathy that Mm. might lead someone to that. And then you've got The Childhood of a Leader, the excellent film that explores the sort of early years, first few years of a horrible dictator's life, sort of Mm -hmm. exploring the ways in which just certain small things might forebode or, Mm. you know, cause a descent that will eventually turn into a massive thing like that. And I I don't think, you know, justifying that is just a YA thing, you know, is a good way out of that necessarily because you can start to tell, you know, kids about important values that if you miss, you know, or if you take the wrong message, the wrong lessons from certain events that exp- you experience, you could find yourself becoming the bad guy. But yeah, yeah. it's just kind of a shame. It, it kind of depowers the main character a little bit and just sort of makes them a, vic- a victim of circumstance. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. Yeah. It pro- probably doesn't help that, you know, in a book, you also get his internal monologue a bit. So oh, sure. It makes it but, a bit you know. more subtle and easier. But so <laughs> Easier, certainly. Yeah. But there's always ways of mm. portraying things mm. like that on the big old big screen. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That one. Yeah, I didn't. I haven't gone to see this one because, well, actually, I haven't finished. I never finished watching the original films because I decided to pause before watching <laughs> Catching Fire Part Two, so I could right. go away and read the books, and then took a full decade to go away and read the books. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair. <enough>. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but mm. 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 how many stars, Paul? Um, I think I gave it three. It's fine. Okay. It's- Fine. Okay. Yeah. Fine. Fair enough. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think. I think the book is also. You know. I yeah. I probably would give the book three. Yeah. I didn't hate it. It's. It's perfectly good. <laughs> and if you enjoy that world, it's. it's just yeah. go read it. You know. It's not a bad book. Sure. 
Uh, and I enjoyed all the um, the little folk songs that were included in the book. Yes, the folk, the music was quite. I, I enjoyed the music, and I enjoyed Ziegler's voice, and mm. I enjoyed the character of Lucy Gray. That was another thing that I felt was. Yeah, she's nice. Yeah, interesting. She's nice, and there is some interesting story that goes on in the second. Yeah, you're right. The second half would be a lot. Yeah, I more think fun so. To watch, but I don't quite know. Maybe if literally you start in media res near the end of the tournament, yeah. that might be interesting. Maybe, but, but then you miss all the build up with his with her anyway it's mm. it, it's hard pacing it's it is, yeah. but anyway a work of adaptation necessarily has to be one of destruction yeah. and rebuilt reconstruction mm-hmm. oh, speaking of destruction mm. and reconstruction i came out of that movie hungry hungry for good cinema that'll do <laughs> and it's God. a good thing to be hungry if you're gonna make it to thanksgiving is this a film yeah okay great <laughs> is this a horror uh, yes so yes, you can chart okay. us now. We're back in November. <laughs> Nearly there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can tell when it's just like na- when it's just named Halloween, Christmas Day, Thanksgiving. You know it's a horror yeah. version of it because why else would you just call it Thanksgiving? Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be the romantic comedy Thanksgiving. It would be called Giving no. Thanks if it was the romantic comedy. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Thanksgiving. What's this we said about it? It's an Eli Roth film. It's um. He made a trailer for this, a fictional trailer for the movie Grindhouse back in 2007, like 15 years ago, 16 years, good lord. And since then, there have been various attempts to adapt some of those trailers, like uh, Machete and Hobo with Shotgun, uh, neither of which I thought were very good at all. (laughs) This film might be the best of them and might be the best Eli Roth film, which is saying very, very little. It's um, a slasher film set at Thanksgiving where somebody's going around. There was a a Thanksgiving sale and there was a great rush okay. on which led to mm-hmm. a number of people being killed and then a year later people you know the people who involved in that night seemed to be getting offed by a sinister sure. f- figure wearing a sort of uh, John Carver mask so okay yeah that's the premise essentially um <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what's happening and it's just it's a relatively effective competently made slasher film i will say that the death sequences are really unimpressive or interesting because they're so silly mm. everybody oh. is made of soft pudding <laughs> just you know I wish i was made of soft pudding yeah it, it might make life easier but it's a, a bit where you know you can just pull someone's head off if you need to and there's a bit mm. where someone is climbing into a dumpster and the dumpster gets hit by a car and the lid of the dumpster falls down and cuts them in half okay like it's just it's silly and i, I know that can be done for like mm. comedic effect but it just made had the effect of just not <laughs> of just feeling like the film wasn't taking itself very seriously mm. and it's it, it's a shame it's a shame because it doesn't offer really enough frills or excitement you know and that's really all it has to go on because the characters obviously are you know two-dimensional incredibly thin there's a slight interest in the murder mystery plot you know it's just it, it's it's all fairly underwhelming and hard, undercooked which is what you'd expect for Eli Roth the jarring tone shifts aren't there you could okay, at good. least say that for it. You know, the absolute just sort of, oh God, what's happening now attempts at comedy <laughs> um, were not there, which I'm grateful for. That is the thing I'm grateful for this year. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fine. It, it's it's two stars, which is a mighty achievement for Eli Roth. It's just <laughs> okay. only mildly annoying. I really hate Great. this guy. <laughs> what else has he done? Um, oh God, he did uh, Cabin Fever was his big one, and then he made the Hostel oh, movies. Oh, is that? Wait, who, what? Who's it? No, 
I don't know. Oh, the Hostel movies, right. Yes, yeah. I have heard of those. More recently, he's made things mm. like Knock Knock, Keanu Reeves, The Green Inferno. Oh, yes. He likes making these... Fro- he made a Death Wish movie. He makes these throwback grindhouse movies with none of the artistry sure. or aesthetic. Okay. Or charm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well... Not terribly good. Not great. Don't want to uh, watch it. Pun, please. No. Oh! Uh, I said the giving thanks thing. That'll do. <laughs> oh, phoning it in. Thanks. What? What Jen. are the public? What are they paying for? What are the public paying for if not for your puns, Paul? <laughs> it's it's the brutal injustice of it all. It is very much one of the themes of Thanksgiving. Finally, we arrive at the movie I watched about two days after our last recording. Okay. It is perhaps the most talked about film of the year, which I'm thrilled to be getting to two months after. <laughs> <laughs> Let it not be said, we are not hot on the button, pressing the topic and the front news. You heard it all here for first, folks. But hey, at least this affords us a certain level of uh, perspective on the whole thing. Mm. Yes, because just two days after the last recording... I managed to get into a sc- I finally managed to get into a screening of Emerald Fennell's Saltburn. Ah oh, yes. <laughs> I have seen this. You have seen this. Everybody has seen this now. It is I even I have seen it. My entire family has seen it. It seems very impossible not to find someone who has seen Saltburn. <laughs> so f- for those who don't know, Barry Kurgan uh, plays Oliver, a man who goes to Oxford University in 2006 on a scholarship where he is ra- ra- massively overwhelmed by all of the rich kids he is around. He soon meets Felix, a privileged and popular student played by Jacob Elordi, and ingratiates himself uh, with him until he is invited to the family estate of Saltburn, mm-hmm. where hijinks ensue. Hijinks indeed. <laughs> so to call this film divisive is in itself divisive. Oh, really? Some people seem to see the, film, the word divisive as a mark of quality in, in itself, and they resent okay. the implication that this film contains things that could be talked of. It's faux wow. provocation. This film's too stupid to be divisive, they will say. What are you on? <laughs> and suddenly the film is aiming to provoke. It's a very cheeky... Oh, yeah. In a sort of naughty kind of middle class way of just sort of, oh, isn't it naughty? This is what we're like, kind of thing. Mm. And Fennel does seem to be positioning herself as a would-be enfant terrible. Um, but she has succeeded because people's response to this film have been very impassioned, with people either loving it or hating it. And I think that's part of the goal. And it's been mm. very interesting to chart these reactions. Two kinds of reaction in particular. Um, one of them re- revolves around Fennel's class. Uh, she is a very, you know, wealthy person herself. She comes mm. from a rich family. I couldn't have possibly told <laughs> by her name. <laughs> I think her father was like a jewelry, ty- like tycoon or something like okay. that. Okay. So yeah. this is her world, you know, sure. and that, you know, people therefore like to debate the impact that's going to have on her perspective. And certainly the ruling classes are portrayed here as these very beautiful, kind of detached and quite charming people who are idiots and completely detached and coldly cruel. You know, mm. it's a satire of her own, certainly, but therefore still has a fair amount of affection for these people. But I thought the point really isn't that the ruling classes are terrible people, it's that it's terrible there is a ruling class. And it doesn't matter yeah. who it is. It doesn't matter if they have good intentions. It doesn't okay. matter if some of them are pretty or charming. They should mm. not be. And I didn't necessarily, the film was against me in that respect. 
<laughs> that so much obscene wealth belongs to such a small group of people, I think is definitely the focus of Fennell's camera. You know, the sheer opulence of these vast, empty spaces occupied by this tiny family who tend to occupy themselves around a small television in one of the smallest rooms <laughs> of the house. You know, this tiny family of disinterested vampires who can't even properly mm. engage with questions about their own privilege. You know, instead wanting to shrug it off or pretend that they're just normal. You know, it's just very casual. Mm. You know, but people still insist this is a, fil- a f- this film might be a warning to the ruling classes to watch out for the lower class interlopers and to safeguard their wealth. And it's like, okay. do you think Inglorious Bastards is a warning to Nazis? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like these are not the good guys. Everyone <laughs> who's, who's watching this, you know, the film is dark humor, but I don't. It's not a polemic. And I struggle to see the ending as anything other than a note of perverse triumph. Yeah. <laughs> that we are encouraged to participate in, not to be horrified by. Or maybe I just misread it. <laughs> yeah. It's scary, but I still felt there was definitely a triumphant chord being struck there in that final moment. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think they deserve this. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Now we're going to get down to some things. <laughs> <laughs> I it's not no I loved this film I thought it was great it's wicked <laughs> it's creepy in a great way yeah. like I I thought it was exquisite and I don't you know I've really grown to settle into tension a lot more I'm right. still not good with it but there was moments in this when David was squeaming away and being like oh can we pause it can we pause it and I'm like no let us sit let us enjoy That's so this. interesting I'm so curious yes. what discomforted David was it just the uh, social I'll tell you later because I don't. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Essentially, it was the social awkward bit, yeah. um, awkwardness. Also, there's some very, you know, there is some fairly provocative yeah. scenes. There is uh, visual. Well, that uh, brings me on to my is... other favorite yeah, on, criticism of the film is that some people have been claiming it isn't shocking enough because lots <laughs> of early reactions hyped the shock fa- uh, factor of the film. Oh, okay. So yeah. on general release, you get to these sleaze snobs saying, "Oh, you <laughs> think this is." shocking have you ever seen a john waters film sure. if it's not pasolini i don't even bother breaking the seal <laughs> on my cinema vomit bags. like literally yeah in john waters divine you know in yeah. pink flamingos like if it's not that yeah. then uh, you know this is not provocation but you do i, I think this is pretty provocative <laughs> i think it's there's definitely stuff in here that grandma won't like <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, I am not recommending this to just anyone. I, I thought it was brilliant, yeah. but it's very much not going to be everyone's <laughs> cup of tea because some of these scenes are like, yeah, whoa, okay, dude. Um, you do you do caught that kind of response, though, when so much of your film's marketing is around how crazy and over the top the film is, which has sure, okay, definitely yeah, been fine. part of what the strategy has been. And as yeah, okay. previously mentioned, there are some scandalous scenes and it does fall short of actually saying saying something that's particularly provocative, you know, like a provocative statement or revolutionary, no. you know, yeah. kind of uh, intention, which I think Promising Young Women maybe did do, or at the very least it took you to okay. a place of discomfort, societal discomfort, and kind of held you there for a bit. Mm. Like, what do you think of consent, you know, and these mm. kinds of relationships? And what do you think is appropriate and kind of made you you know sit there in sure. that uncertainty for a bit which i thought was you know maybe more revolutionary than this yeah fine. no i wouldn't say that there was any particularly deep this is a wonder <laughs> this is a really enjoyable film yeah um uh, but i didn't particularly i didn't think it needed any more meaning to it than it had <laughs> i just think it's a really entertaining mm. character study um just enjoy it just watch it yeah. don't 
don't read any more about it. Just sit <laughs> in and enjoy that first watch. Yeah. And it, it, go along for the ride. Well, you know, it, it's... Um, I saw the director talk um, at a thing and she talked about Cruel Intentions. You know, oh, yeah. the 90s film with Sarah Michelle yeah, yeah, Gellar. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it's, um, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I can see it's that. It's titillating. Mm-hmm. But not too much beyond that. But it, like you say, doesn't need to be too much beyond that. It is a very yeah. engagingly made film. I did see one person suggest that it's a shame that director Emerald Fennell is stuck with writer Emerald Fennell. And that goes okay. a little closer towards my big criticism of the film, which is there's this wonderful moment about halfway through between Barry Kurgan and Rosamund Pike, who plays the sort of matriarch, mm. where the dynamic that's been established so far shifts. Mm-hmm. Everyone's been talking. They, yes. Everyone's been using the screenshot of this moment where Barry Kogan sort of does this smile, and it's mm. it's electrifying. Suddenly, you don't know where you are with this character, and mm. I think I wanted more of that. I wanted more Machiavellian machinations. Oh, did you? More ambiguity, more subtle psychological games. But you know, after that, there's maybe the next scene and the thing that he does, you know, with the sister. It has a little bit more of that, but after that, it's pretty obvious what his intentions are and what okay. his actions are, and it's quite melodramatic and slightly incredulous what he does. We go into camp, basically, which doesn't spoil the fun, but I just wanted a bit more sort of subtle. I wanted a bit more subtlety in Saltburn. <laughs> I think, sense. for me personally, I didn't see it going fully where it went. Like, <laughs> I, I, I knew what Felix's fate was going to yes. be the first 30 seconds of this film. Yeah. Essentially, the first like you know the first scene you know what's going to happen yeah. to one character i didn't see how the <laughs> entire story would play out okay and that, yeah fair enough i think for me until it started you know i thought it was fed quite you know i thought it was fed quite nicely <laughs> yeah i think so i i would say that um because it certainly ratchets up the pace a bit after a certain point and then suddenly yes. it's less like at the point where you realize where things are going more mm. at that point you're you're not waiting around so much yeah yeah no absolutely i i do have to say i, f- I thought the performances were great kurgan was a oh, yeah. very powerful screen presence and elordi was gorgeous and pike plays this sort of wispy ghost in a quite a gorgeous way her. yeah very <laughs> she's so good very believable <laughs> and the film looks great some truly memorable cinematography yeah but i do relate to some of the critics who of the film who say that it's a shame that this is the one that everybody's talking about when there are films like Femme on how to have sex, which are more provocative and asking substantially more interesting questions about very sensitive topics. But it is, it's not hard to see why this is the one that reached out to mainstream audiences and sort of caused a big yeah, splash. Yeah, it's more enjoyable. It's not, it's not a miserable film to watch. Neither are the other two. <laughs> Paul, you described, you described Femme in a way that sound, made it sound quite miserable. Then I missold it because it's a dynamic okay. and extremely exhilarating journey into the underworld. And it's fun. Well, you come out, you laugh throughout it and you come out feeling good in like a bad way. Yeah. You see, that's but, the but thing. You feel is like this... you're a bad person, but you enjoyed it anyway. Yeah, that's the thing is this thing has that sort of naughty, you know, saucy book quality you know what it is this is 50 shades of gray compared to something that's actually a psychological thriller i I think that's a i think that's a very mean comparison totally it's quite similar (laughs) oh paul in terms of its actual realization you know what it is it's the first 50 shades of gray film because that was actually made by an actual director with some vision yeah i would still disagree (laughs) but uh i think this was very entertaining yeah it's entertaining 
Uh, I think Fennel will probably succeed in becoming this generation's Lars von Trier, a very divisive figure who makes very beautiful but often quite silly films that many hate but others love quite dearly. For my part, I would love to see her work with another screenwriter because I think she is a lot more technically accomplished than she is conceptually. Uh, nevertheless, it's uh, it's still three stars. Whoa, okay. <laughs> it's still a lot of stars. I, I'm, I'm giving it five. <laughs> completely different opinion Amazing. this film's great ignore paul <laughs> ignore paul he's not always right i'm right well there you go i'm right on this occasion <laughs> there you see and if you disagree with me i'll salt burn your house down oh there's your, there's pun. your pun i'll burn your house salt I'll burn your house oh <laughs> salt burn your ha- i'll salt burn your house down <laughs> well one thing that i think cannot be argued with any degree of um veracity is that this is a divisive film <laughs> Yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And people who say it's not divisive, that's just nonsense. It is nonsense. <laughs> it is divisive. Is one divisive-ass film. Yeah. Uh, well, we're back at the first ep- at our last episode, but one last thing before we go, because I don't usually do this, but unusually I did decide to check out two, just two of the season's straight-to-streaming <laughs> films. I don't okay. often go for TV movies, but yeah, it's the enough. festive season, and I've already, you know, I've been at the family house, so, you know, needs must. So... Yeah. We start with the family event of the season. No, it's not Genie. It's Chicken Run 2, Dawn of the Nugget. Oh, I watched like the first 20 minutes of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I imagine most people just don't know it exists because there was very little <laughs> fanfare for Chicken Run 2, yeah. Dawn of the Nugget, considering how well-loved the first one is. Yeah. Just went on Netflix. Only on Netflix, says the uh, poster. <laughs> great. Uh, great. Thanks thanks for that, Netflix. Mm. So, yeah, we pick up from... Um, from Roughly, I don't know how much time has passed from the previous film. I mean, chickens don't live that long. It must be like <laughs> <laughs> it's the next day. No, it's it's eleven years. At the very least, the kid is told to, to us to be eleven years old because Ginger and Rocky have had a kid. Yeah, and she's eleven years old, or at least you know, in chicken years, is eleven yeah. years old. She's she's a month. Yeah, <laughs> she's lived for one month and is middle aged as a result. Yeah, and. <laughs> And yes, they've settled into a nice little place that they're living, quite close to where they escaped, but, you know, far hey, enough. Got short legs, yeah. they can't get far, <laughs> they can't can they? get far, the little things. So, yeah. yes, they have started a new life, but fortunately, uh, Molly, their daughter, wanders off and ends up captured inside of a giant poultry processing plant manufacturing chicken nuggets by mm. brainwashing the inhabitants. And so it's up to Ginger and Rocky to break into... Uh, chicken run this time in order to free mm-hmm. their daughter and all the other chickens too. It's um directed by Sam Fell, who has not mm-hmm. worked with Ardman before, but previously has worked on things like Flushed Away, which I don't believe was uh yes with the rats yeah with the rats and the mm. sewer. Wait, is that Ardman? No, no, it just looks a lot like it. It's an animation, right? That's not a stop DreamWorks. Motion, an oh, it was. Yeah, it had Ardman features involved. So, oh, interesting. Interesting. They also worked on the. Uh, he also worked on the Tales of Despero and Paranorman. Yeah, they both ring a bell, but I've not watched them. I Paranorman think. was quite good. Um, was it? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It was a sort of spooky kind of movie for kids, which Fun. is always something I like. Oh, y- yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, it's coming back to Yeah, me. <laughs> it was quite generic in mm. some way. But yeah, it's... So we've got this guy directing. It's not, you know, our usual guy, uh, Nick Park. He doesn't seem to have been involved in any capacity. And it is far... It is definitely not as good as the original Chicken Run. 
you know, one thing that you think of when you think of the original Chicken Run is it's kind of remarkable how much of that movie was just a two-hander between its two leads. Considering this is a kid's animation, and it does have lots of kids' jokes, mm. so much of it is set in just that dingy sort of camp. Um, and so much of it is dialogue between our two main characters as one of them deludes the other in a very complicated sort of psychologically upsetting situation where one of them is lying to the other for their own aggrandizement mm. and you're just waiting for this dream the only dream they have of liberation to just kind of fall apart kind mm. of brutal in many ways here it's much more story-driven affair it's just yeah. this happens then this happens then this happens then this happens and time for the characters to actually have any kind of dynamic with each other is limited Mm. Also, we have quite a few uh, voice replacements. Um, Tandy Wayne Newton steps into the role of Ginger quite well. Okay. I think she does a good job. You know, it's always yeah. you know lovely to hear the sort of northern accent characters yes. in these epic yeah. situations. That's always lovely. Yeah. Zachary Levy is replacing Mel Gibson. Uh, yes. Zachary Levy famed for his uh, earlier appearance this year in Shazam 2 and resultant meltdown as a result. And... I will say, it, regardless of that and entirely outside of that, it's not a very charismatic performance. Okay. Like, you yeah. think of Mel Gibson's Rocky, and I know, you know, Rocky's sure. far more... Gibson's far more cancelled than Levy. And, um, <laughs> but his, he's, he gives it this panache, this style, this mm. excitement, you know, this larger-than-life American kind of nature yeah. that just feels very... It carries you along, whereas, mm. yeah, Levy cannot achieve the same, unfortunately, with his performance. Um, otherwise, in the cast, you've got people like Ramesh Ranganathan and David Bradley, you know, Daniel Mays, Jane Horrocks, Melda Staunton, you know, Sarah Finowitz, Miranda Richardson. So a lot of good voice acting in general. But yeah, it just doesn't it doesn't excite in the same way or create that sense of mm. connection or endearment as the original Chicken Run. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd agree. I watched 20 minutes yeah. of this. We turned it off because I was it was bedtime. Yeah, I was fair. too sleepy to be watched starting a new film at like 10 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> I'm old. Um, and yeah, we both agreed we probably weren't going to continue it. There's no need. It just, it's the jokes that did come up. Yeah. There weren't that many jokes for a start. Yeah. There's not that many jokes considering how much work it takes for them to make one of these films. Yes. Usually they're crafting every single scene is like, well, punchline, punchline, yeah. something funny, something interesting. Because it's going to take you hours just to make this one little scene. And there's just no joke. There's just not that many jokes in this. And the ones that are feel like they're really trading on chicken, the first chicken run or like rehashing <laughs> yes. a joke from oh, chicken God. run. Oh, God. I mean, what is the... It's just the same jokes again. What's the character <laughs> not that... who's kind of ditzy and doesn't quite know what's going uh, on? Babs. Babs. Yeah, yeah it's Babs? just the same gags. Yeah, it's just Babs. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, oh, look, isn't it Babs? Yeah. She's funny. There's not a lot of range in that. It's not great. <laughs> So yeah, I I wasn't impressed, unfortunately. I love Argon. I love Argon. Yeah, this was a bit of a that's a sh- <laughs> bit of a waste of time. It's really. a shame, isn't it? And it feels like kind of a yeah. cynical enterprise. I know that it's hard to run an animation studio these days because the mm. demand to get films out there and sort of made and distributed vastly exceeds their ability to actually make them because it's difficult mm. to make animated films. But it is especially with clay, especially with clay and old fashioned techniques. But it's so disappointing to see, you know, such yeah. a bland product come from Artman. They've had such wonderfully funny, mm. like witty little films before. Yeah. This, oh, it just felt a bit bland. It is bland. And one of the things is that they always used to be great at stuffing their production design with details mm. and little jokes yes. and smaller things. You know, and there's yes. so much of this film is set in this bland sort of steel tubes. Oh, is it? I didn't get that far. I got to the, just them starting to do the break in. Yeah. 
Well, a lot of it just um, isn't very interesting, and it's a shame. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Shame. Yeah, because I thought when I first saw it that this could because again they they I heard about this because of the London Film Festival brochure. Mm. I was like, oh, okay, interesting, fun. I enjoy the original Trick and Run. Yeah. So I, did, I had some hopes, not incredibly high hopes, but I was thought, I figured Aardman, they're always good. Yeah. This one was a bit... Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's a shame. There was no Wallace and Gromit. There was no Wallace and Gromit, and they're making another Wallace and Gromit soon, and I just hope that they okay. pull out all the stops for that one. Yeah. They've had... They've had that one, they've managed to do more sequel. You know, they've managed to do several films already. Mm. And they've all been fun. Yeah. So... I think there's more wriggle room. Yeah. Hopefully. And I'm glad they're not just making more Shaun the Sheep films because those films also never quite did yeah, it for me in the same enough. way. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Ah, well. Mm. I'm sure the target audience of sort of young kids will like it if they actually sure. see it and connect with it mm. because it does seem like it's been somewhat buried, which is a shame. Nah. Anyway, one last film to talk about, Jen. Mm-hmm. Another straight-to-streaming uh, film, and it's another entry in a much-beloved franchise from my childhood, the film career of John Woo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the man who absolutely reinvented the action movie in the 80s and 90s. Yes. Hasn't doves, made... Doves, doves, doves. Oh, gets doves everywhere. <laughs> Jean-Claude Van Damme, wonderful things happening. His first American film since 2003's Paycheck, 20 years uh-huh. ago. Okay. And his first film that's been seemingly released in the West since 2009 when Redcliffe came out. You know, he's mm. made several films since then, but I don't think any of them got UK releasing. Nevertheless, this is Silent Night. Oh. Yeah. With. Um, no, tell me about this. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> this, is, this is a sort of action movie set at Christmas um, uh-huh. with Joel Kinnaman in it. As a man oh, yeah. whose kid is killed in a terrible accident, uh, a drive, uh, a gang war between two people, okay. a stray shot kills this kid. So he goes out for revenge. Mm-hmm. In the same incident, he receives a bullet to the throat, which takes away his ability to speak. Silent hero. Silent hero and silent movie because the film has very little spoken dialogue as a result, no. um, which sometimes is a bit Ho- odd because you know every nobody's speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully more punches to make up for it, though, Well, right? you might get some more punches. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, you know, the poster sells it is from the producer of John Wick, you know, and it is more mm. John Wick than it is John Woo, but without necessarily the visual flair. When you go into a John mm. Woo movie, you want dumb vehicle stuff, you want over-the-top performances, sure. and you want some excellent gunplay, preferably mm-hmm. with people with a gun in each hand. Yes. <laughs> in this film, it's more sort of very quick little exchanges in a sort of John Wick style, but without uh-huh. the sort of excitement or invention there. Mm. It's, it's yeah. unfortunately you get kind of the worst of both worlds, and only occasionally do you remember how exciting John Wick used to be. Um, you know, plenty of CGI blood, although some physical blood splatter as well, which is to be appreciated. But yeah, it was very bland, unfortunately, and it's kind of the ultimate dad action movie because he's not really anyone. He's an electrician, I think, and okay. he, after getting his shot in the sort of vocal cord, he go- retires to his garage and decides to train himself up with sort of home you know, exercise equipment and YouTube videos to sort of teach him how to fight and how to mm. you know kick ass and all the rest of it, so... Okay. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> the, the... <laughs> we could be him. We could be him. I could, I could invent a sports car, and then I could train <laughs> to, to take down an entire gang. You can still do it, Dad. I could be him. There's still time. It's yeah. 
there's there's occasionally the action does have heft you know there's a mm. really good hand-to-hand combat sequence between him and a guy who he takes cust he takes capture of what, what's the word he captures mm. and <laughs> he captures him and then he escapes and there's a really good visceral kind of hand-to-hand fight okay which cool. is is very good um but yeah for the most part it's just very bland sort of modern action without much to recommend it which is a shame and kinnaman uh, is not the most expressive of actors um hmm. he uh, i find yeah he's been in a lot of things he's capable of a very sad looking face is what i've seen of, <laughs> seen of joel kinnaman he can look very unhappy but that's kind Aww. of it so you know it's yeah not necessarily one that you need to go out of your way to see and i don't think it's going to join the ranks of sort of classic cult christmas movies it made me think of last year's film, Violent Night, with the Santa mm. who has to defend the house sure. from the terrorists. Like that's a yeah. more successful film tonally and in terms of delivering actual engaging okay. sequences. So, yeah, I'd recommend sticking to that and not worrying too much about okay. Silent Night. Interesting. Yeah. Shame. Interesting. Shame. 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 I really like Shame. John Woo, but I would stick to Face mm. Off. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, nah. there you go. There you it go. certainly hasn't been a silent night here when it comes to talking about movies. No, we have talked for two hours. We have talked Paul. for two hours, and that's longer than you I've had talked to anyone. Thirteen films. I know, and this is one of uh, our longest episodes yet. Well, it's because I'd seen some of them, so I started gabbing. <laughs> that is the disadvantage. <laughs> it is the problem. I shouldn't be allowed to see films, and yet that was the best stuff in there. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to claim that. Or everything I said was the best. <laughs> Um, I'm gonna add. Oh. I'm gonna add even more. Oh no! What? I um, got round to seeing the Boy and the Heron at the cinema. Ooh. Now it's on uh, general release, which you covered in the London Film Festival episode. I, believe. I sure did. What did you make of the Boy and the yes. Heron? Oh, it was lovely. Yeah. Very nice. Very beautiful. Wasn't it beautiful. Uh, very cool. <laughs> weird. It was weird. I feel like it was weirder than an awful lot of. Um... You haven't seen that much Ghibli. Yes. No, I've seen two of them, <laughs> which I've seen within the past fortnight. <laughs> so my Ghibli uh, adventure started within the past fortnight. Yeah, yeah. So you could, yeah, you yeah, saw yeah. Mononoke. <laughs> yes, yeah, I did. So you can see how th- there's definitely the yeah. common threads there of sort of personal trauma explored through these grand mm-hmm. sort of cinematic yeah. things. But this is a Boy in the Heron is a weirder one. <laughs> Weirder in some ways and less weird in others, you know? Yeah. I mean, the army of parakeets. Yes. (laughs) They were great. (laughs) They were very funny. (laughs) They were great. It still has that cheeky sense of humour, but also the lovely abstract mythology, like the souls, you know, going up to Mm, the earth to be born. Yeah, I really enjoyed that sequence, that whole thing. But then the things that come and eat them, and it's like, oh God, like, it has this great mythic quality. Yeah, that was one of my favourite bits of the whole film, that whole... um, that whole sequence period yeah. act. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was very lovely. I trust. It's out of the cinema now. Did you see the Japanese language version? Yes. I yeah, am curious. I do want to see how Robert Pattinson voices the heron in yeah. the English dub. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it could be good uh, because, yeah, we watched Mononoke with uh, voices, with dub. Oh, okay. That um, dub track was written by like... Neil Gaiman. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, that's got like Tommy Lee Jones and people <laughs> in it, and you're just like, <laughs> I know that voice. <laughs> but they did a very good job of it, mm. so uh, I could imagine they do a very good job. The advantage of this style, you know, this style of animation is that, uh, and with you know a big budget film like this, they've probably got 
you know, good translators and subtitlers yeah. to really work on, you know, uh, work on this to get a really good script so that it really fits in with... Uh, there's real art to subtitling something so that it fits the faces and it fits, you know... Yeah. And then you work with the voice actors so that, you know, you, you don't want to notice that it's dubbed. But this style of animation as well, it helps that, you know, the mouths don't have to exactly... It's not very super expressive in the mouth area. Yeah. <laughs> so you can dub something over without being like, hey, their lips are just moving completely differently, which always takes me out of it. There's a couple of adverts going around on TV at the moment <laughs> where it's quite clearly been dubbed in. And I think one of them's just they've replaced an American accent with a British yes, one. Yes, they do that a lot. Yeah, and it's just, it draws immediately. I'm just like, what is going on? <laughs> I, I have no idea what the ads are for because I'm just staring at their mouths. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. very distracting. But yeah, yeah. No, we saw the subtitle version. It was, um, which, you know, I can recommend that. Excellent. Good stuff. I thought it was good, worth watching. <laughs> they did a good side job just sub- subtitling that as it was. Yeah. No, absolutely. So. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Yes, Boy and the Heron is marvellous. Yeah. So it's out, it's out, I believe it, I think it was Boxing Day it got its release, right? Yeah. Yes, I think so, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, mm. do check that out. And in fact, there's quite a lot mm-hmm. of films from the LFF that are now circulating or coming up. Great. Uh, consequently... Go back and listen to our old episode. Yeah, go listen <laughs> to that and, yeah, to get the, the sort of uh, preview of some of the great things that are coming up very soon, including yeah. Poor Things, my favourite film of mm-hmm. the year, so check that out. Um, yeah. Yeah. I expect you're re-listening to our LFF ep- episode every two months <laughs> so that you can refresh yourself as the new releases are um, oh, yeah. become available. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, certainly Eileen. That's, that's your job. Um, and a bunch mm-hmm. of things that had already... Uh, May, December yeah. was big this, yeah. this Christmas. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, been yeah. around, so... There you, there you go, listeners. Yeah. You've got your homework. <laughs> Excellent. Well, speak, well, speaking of homework, how else can people find out about all of our stuff? Well... They can find out about us by going to Twitter at Screen Mayhem and uh, getting in touch with us there. You can email us at filmcriticpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, those are the two things I usually say, isn't it? (laughs) Our theme music was by Jacob Blundell and this is a Screen Mayhem podcast. And my name is Jen Blundell and with me was my film critic, Paul Salt. Say goodbye, Paul Salt. Goodbye. Oh, it's Keanu. Is Keanu Reeves on? Is John Wick on? <laughs> oh the call? no! How, oh, maybe Joel Kinnaman's on the call. Let me let me oh, replicate that. Okay. Mhm. Flawless. My best impression yet. <laughs> Your best impression yet. <laughs> Great. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>